0: The woman, and followed it it
1: hello and welcome to one week one year a podcast where we watch and discuss every year of film history in order starting in 1895 the dawn of cinema and this week is 1933 i'm one of your hosts chris ellie i'm a film projectionist and joining me as always is
2: i'm glenn covell i'm a filmmaker
1: he makes films <laughs> yeah we are are uh back at it again 1933 uh just a quick note for everybody that uh you can watch this on youtube or listen on your podcast app of choice uh different little slight bonuses depending on which avenue you go uh maybe maybe there are uh uh, I don't know, maybe you should listen to it twice. <laughs> you really shouldn't. <laughs> but whatever your preference, thank you for listening. Uh, Glenn, how's it going? What's up?
2: Uh, It's going. It's going fine, I suppose. I had a nice little Thanksgiving holiday in the Hudson Valley, where I'm from, and where you're from, I suppose.
1: Yes. That's why we know each other. Proximity. Very, very true. <laughs> <laughs> Guess I haven't recorded since before the festival, and the Denver Film mm. Festival was uh, uh, one of the craziest, most stressful things I've ever done. But it was cool. Uh, There's a lot of fun stuff that happened, uh, and yeah, I, I did my own kind of Thanksgiving jam. But that was sort Great. of. And uh, we're at the theater. We're returning to playing uh, 35 millimeter film. I uh, we played this movie Divinity on 35. Couple days ago, and it looks nice. really it's really cool. Nineteen thirty-three. Let's get into it, Glenn. Mm. Uh, what what happened in the year nineteen thirty-three? Like, what what was some of the news items of note? Well,
3: the news of the year nineteen thirty-three. After being claimed as spoils of the Spanish-American War, the U.S. Congress votes to allow independence for the Philippines. The Nazis seize power in Germany after Adolf Hitler is appointed Chancellor. Germany bans all other political parties and trade unions. The Reichstag Parliament Building is burned to the ground. The Dachau concentration camp is open to imprison political dissidents. Unemployment reaches 25%. One quarter of the United States is out of a job. The Postal Telegraph Company introduces the first singing telegram. The Screen Actors Guild is established in Hollywood. Newly elected President Franklin Roosevelt introduces his New Deal to bring jobs back to America. A monstrous aquatic beast is sighted in the Scottish lake of Loch Ness. The first drive-in movie theater opens. The storms sweep across American farmland. The 21st Amendment is ratified. Prohibition is repealed.
2: And that is the news. And I have a prop this time oh. for that last one. Ah! A, an authentic uh, reproduction newspaper of the repeal of Prohibition. The
1: Herald Examiner. What a yeah, generic it's newspaper a, title! It's, uh, it's Chicago. It's a R- Chicago. Read R- it out for the for the podcast audience.
2: Uh, the the you can hear the the fine
1: uh,
2: ASMR audio of this newspaper.
1: Do you have your microphone switched to ASMR mode?
2: No, I don't know if it has one. Uh, <laughs> the headline is "Prohibition Era Ended." Loop crowds hail repeal. Loop. Uh, I'm not. I didn't read the article, so I'm not sure about these loop crowds. But just the fact that I had that. I felt like I should put it on the camera.
1: Nice prop. We should uh, we should be drinking for this one, although it's really like late like December when Prohibition ends. So yeah, most of 1933 sure. by being immersive, we should stay sober. Uh, and also the Nazis. That's a bummer, right? We huge told, bummer. We, yeah. We, Hot take. Huge bummer. <laughs> I actually um I actually went to that concentration camp. Uh, uh yeah. when I visited Germany a few years ago and it is, uh, it, it is obviously like the most heavy thing that I have ever done basically. Like, um, yeah, it's, like just walking in there, like feels awesome. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but let's, uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> let's not talk about the nazis right now we don't we don't want to do that but for now yeah let's uh let's let's get into one week one reel a couple a couple short cartoons to yeah wet our appetites
2: i do i feel like it's kind of funny how all all the shorts we've been covering lately have just been cartoons like that's that's sort of where shorts are at now it's like it's mostly cartoons that are kind of the most notable things to talk about that's
1: the sense that i get is that um you know cartoon shorts newsreels and Mm -hmm. uh and then features maybe there are i think there are some live action shorts like some short comedies or whatever but like all of the kind of notable comedy people seem to have moved on to features yeah
2: but i think there's maybe we'll do some like three stooges pretty
1: soon i think they're gonna start doing shorts in like the mid 30s so that's fun i will say like i the more cartoons that i watch from the early 30s the more i want to watch uh, mm-hmm. there. I saw little pieces of a of a Disney, um, thirty three cartoon recently, and it just looked so fantastic. We're not talking about this episode, but it's just like as we kind of traced the the evolution of Disney and Fleischer like animation over the course of however many previous years, uh. And watched it get more advanced. I think it is really, really matured at this point. And it's, it's they're, they're doing really interesting stuff. Mm. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Fleischer, though, uh, we've got uh, Popeye the Sailor Man, a Betty Boop well, cartoon. Just Popeye the Sailor,
2: I think is the title of the oh. short, right?
1: Uh, maybe.
2: But the song is Popeye the Sailor Man. So.
1: Yes. Popeye the Sailor with Betty Boop.
2: Yeah. Um, I didn't realize that this is, like... I guess P- Popeye has more screen time, but it's, like... This is, like, a Betty Boop cartoon that, like, introduces a new
1: character, kind of. It, it does... Yeah, it does seem like a lot of uh, what has been happening is that Betty Boop is such a, like, standout star here that, mm-hmm. like, everything has to be... like Like, Bimbo got wrapped up into Betty Boop, mm-hmm. and so, like... She can just make a, a cameo in anything that they want to do that is that is not related yeah, to her. This is
2: like Betty Boop presents Popeye. <laughs> uh, Betty Boop no longer a poodle in this one.
1: Yes, full a full human, full human <laughs> flapper. <laughs> uh, she she appears for a second as a uh, hula dancer, a a, mm-hmm. a tanned Betty Boop. I guess, uh, uh, let's not get into the politics of that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, that is a hula dancer uh, in a short segment in this. But it is mostly about Popeye. Uh, yeah. And and he, um, he arrives fully fleshed out as the Popeye yeah. we know.
2: Like, exactly the classical... All the Popeye stuff is in this first short. Like, Popeye immediately came onto the scene with all of his character traits fully <laughs> formed, and then did not change ever.
1: Uh yes. He he introduces himself with a like kind of cat style this is who I am song. Mm, there uh, you go. Yeah. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. Uh and then he kind of gives some details about what his deal is. He he hates all pelucas and what ain't on the up and square. <laughs> uh- <laughs> Don't we all. <laughs> Uh, I, I I the usage of paluca and they, they say it a couple times in this one. they call people palucas, and I, I I quite enjoy it.
2: yeah paluca um, yeah, he likes uh, eating spinach and punching objects into smaller versions of the same object <laughs> like picks up a big anchor, punches it into a bunch of small anchors, picks up a big clock, punches it into a bunch of small clocks. Classic sailor activity.
1: That that's that is what sailors do, yeah. Uh, I I I my understanding of the world is mostly informed by cartoons, but yes, yeah.
2: it is funny that like Popeye, I, what I think of as Popeye's kind of whole, whole deal is like eating spinach and fighting, right? And like neither of those are those like like he's not it like, has nothing to do with boats. Like, like he's not there... doing like sailor things.
1: <laughs> that is true. I mean, like I wonder if there is some kind of um. Some kind of association between sailors and spinach, but I, I don't really. And maybe know. it's just like
2: a can, a can of spinach. So it's like this, the the kind of spinach that you'd eat on a boat. So, you know, he's not eating fresh spinach. Right. He's not cooking spinach up in like a into a nice salad. He's just eating it right from a can. I did think this this has a lot of kind of classic Fleischer Brothers uh, cartoon stuff, though.
1: Yeah. Yeah. A lot of fun, like really fun cartoon logic in this, mm-hmm. uh, like, uh, going across a rope bridge and the rope bridge gets cut. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, he kind of ha- like, it stays rigid, uh, as it falls down, it stays yeah. rigid on the left side as it falls down from the right side. And so you can run away on the, on the rigid bridge. Or uh, then he he uh, to get across the the ravine
2: he throws a rope across and just pulls the whole mountain so that the <laughs> ravine closes.
1: I, I I that's that's maybe my favorite bit from this.
2: That was definitely my favorite bit because I it it got me like I did not expect that to happen and it, it yes. I definitely guffawed when it did.
1: It's some classic like cartoon logic, uh, mm-hmm. which they have a good amount of in here where. Uh, You know, Popeye's strong and he like hits the bell on the, you know, you hit the hammer on the ground and it makes the bell ring yeah. carnival game thing. And or then, then flies out in the air and then hits the moon and bounces off <laughs> the moon.
2: But then he punches Bluto, the villain, and his Adam's apple on his neck goes up and hits his head and that makes the same bell sound. <laughs> Which is also a pretty good, good bit
1: uh and we also have a uh tying olive oil to the train tracks type situation although it's muscle guy version where they uh they wrap the train tracks around her
2: (laughs) (laughs) which i we probably talked about this on the show before i was trying to find a while ago i was trying to find like what is the first instance of like tying a woman to train tracks
1: well it was vaudeville
2: yeah but like i couldn't because of all of the like early 1910 shorts and things. And I think we watched a single one that had that in it.
1: Um, I feel like we did, but I don't, I don't remember.
2: Yeah. Like, I think it's one of those things that people kind of associate with like old timey silent movie stuff that it's like, it's not really in there.
1: There is definitely a, um, yeah, it's like a trope. It's a trophy mm-hmm. thing of, of yeah. old, old movies. I believe movie silently has an article about that specifically Mm. yeah Uh, if i find it we can link it
2: yeah um i also thought so speaking of that carnival game with the hammer and hitting the the bell uh apparently the reward for that carnival game in popeye universe is a box of cigars
1: (laughs) right and then they do they do a bit that is done in some in one of the other movies here which is uh uh, you're handed a box of cigars to take one. You take one out and then hand the one back to them and take the entire box, <laughs> which is done with cigarettes in in a movie we'll talk about later. Oh,
2: I don't know if I even picked up on that.
1: Yeah, they did that in um, desi- in um in Gold Diggers of uh, Okay 1933. Anything else to say about Popeye? It's a cartoon. It's fun. Watch it.
2: There's there's some. Racist caricature stuff happening in this also, which is uh, a bummer, but his 30s, things were shittier back then.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, on that, and I think we've touched on this before, that, like, one of the things that was most astounding to me watching the early, early movies is how there was relatively few instances of outright racism. And, uh, you know, stuff like D.W. Griffith really feels like an outlier at the time. Well, then, uh, but, I
2: think because of him, it became less of an outlier. Maybe, it, yeah. It feels like there's definitely been more, like, not even depictions of racism on screen, of just, like, movies that are, it, like, in their being racist, in their, like, depictions and their ideals, kind of, right. since Breath of a Nation, which is uh, also a bummer. But, I would
1: say even, especially in the late 20s, early 30s, like, I, the, the kind of, like, racial caricature stuff sort of turned mm-hmm. up a notch yeah uh unfortunately
2: on that note let's talk about a different
1: movie <laughs> yeah the other uh, the other short that we looked at was uh, a night on bald mountain which uh was super cool
2: yeah super cool i had never heard of this movie i only found out about it because it's listed on letterboxd i'd never even he- heard of this type of animation before which is also super cool and interesting
1: yeah pin screen animation is the method that it was animated with, which was basically invented the year prior this This movie took what eighteen months to finish mm-hmm. for uh, nine minutes approximately which like it makes sense like the this is so intricate it's really yeah it's really absurd like the amount of um i don't know new and strange imagery that can be made with this technique.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's really distinctive, but it's also like I wasn't really sure how it was done until I, I looked up a, a YouTube thing or like there's a, a, a like a short documentary about how it's done that was made in the 60s, I think. Hmm. Um, but it's with the the original co inventors of this animation, uh, Claire Parker and Alexandre uh, or Alexandre Alexiev. I should really look up how to pronounce things before recording them on a podcast. But
1: his middle name is Alexandrovich.
2: Had this, his parents just picked one name and just went with that, huh? They were just like, <laughs> let's just put a bunch of variations on on that.
1: Alex, Alex, Alex.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: uh, and this movie was also directed by the two of them.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Claire Parker was a an American, uh, like MIT educated engineer. And Alexandre was a Russian filmmaker and illustrator. And they together invented this wacky pin screen animation technique, which is like a board full of tiny black pins that depending on how many many and how far the pins are sticking out of the board, create a black and white image.
1: Based on, like, the amount of light that they're letting through, right?
2: Yeah, which is, like, it's very, I think, very difficult to describe. Um, this is definitely an instance where the YouTube version is going to come in handy, because we can probably put up some visual aids.
1: Yeah. Uh, the 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 imagery that it produces almost ends up looking like it's printed on, like, cloth. Like, bur- like yeah. a burlap sack or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is really distinctive. It's got this kind of, like grittiness to it that um
2: yeah it's very kind of smoky almost it has sort of this like uh like lines aren't super clean and there's a lot of uh just like variation in in light and shadow kind of like i mean i think that the imagery that they make with it kind of uses that to its advantage too it's a lot of like clouds and smoke and yeah spooky stuff
1: But I mean, speaking of the imagery that they make with it, there are like this really must just be to do with their animation prowess and not with the the device itself. Because there is some really incredible imagery in this movie, not just in and of itself, but also like in terms of like how it was animated. There Mm -hmm. are, are a lot of like very convincing looking like 3D rotations of of yeah. objects uh, almost as if you're looking at like a clay figurine, but you're not uh, like it, it kind of produces that effect in a way, but like the, the way characters move around and shift and the way that like shadows fall on faces, it's so intricate. It is like, like no wonder it took so long because it, it is, it's, it's incredibly um, yeah. It seems incredibly like labor intensive and artistic, uh like like as far as what is uh afforded in animation.
2: Yeah, well, eighteen months for nine minutes. For as long as stop motion takes to make, this feels like it's like somehow even more labor intensive because it's like pushing tiny pins through a through a screen.
1: Yeah. Wild.
2: Yeah, but it's it's yeah, it feels very like expressionistic and uh playing with perspective stuff. Was I was like, I don't understand how they did this. This is crazy. Um, there's a lot of really cool, like, kind of shape shifting, yeah, which is a big deal in like this era of animation, I guess, because there's a lot of that in Popeye, also of just like objects turning into other objects, and like you know, that like a train that grows a face, whereas this is like a horse that turns into a different horse, or like a face that turns into a s- s- cloud into oh. like a yeah yeah it um a bunch of a bunch of chat like teeth that like appear through stuff yeah
1: yeah this also has like a very um uh it has a very fantasia kind of vibe to it Mm -hmm. uh it's just music it is this the the song night on bald mountain uh the classical song Mm -hmm. uh by Mussorgsky. uh, sure, and uh, and it's just a bunch of like really kind of it's like the devil scene in Fantasia, mm-hmm. just a bunch of macabre imagery set to to that piece, yeah. right?
2: Because that piece is also used in Fantasia, right?
1: Oh, I don't know, maybe it is. Oh, is it the same thing in Fantasia?
2: I'm not. It's been a while since I've seen it, so I'm not sure. But if so, then I, it's very likely that this this short was an influence on fantasia though. wow yeah no way yeah the totally. imagery is very similar
1: the i i'm a little distracted because of my my front window is open and <laughs> i i think that the delivery guy just saw me podcasting which is embarrassing. <laughs> oh no <laughs> <laughs> the greatest shame being outed as a podcaster <laughs> Uh, do you have anything else on Night on Bald Mountain?
2: I don't think so. It's on Criterion Channel and Spot, and not Spotify. Uh, uh, Canopy and probably YouTube also. Go, go watch it. It's cool.
1: Uh, and with that, let's move on to our feature presentation.
0: And now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation.
2: Alrighty, uh, shall we, uh, nice, we start with a? Should we start with Glenn's?
1: obvious favorite (laughs) a classic an absolute classic that you'd be insane to try and say uh say anything negative about i might be insane
2: but yeah let's talk about duck soup uh (laughs) the 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 marx brothers movie probably their most famous
1: movie yeah that or a night at the opera
2: definitely the one that i was kind of familiar with the most like yeah duck soup, marx brothers that one
1: which uh directed by Leo McCarey, we we kind of touched on or I don't think we actually we the two you and me kind of talked about another movie called Duck Soup that was a short film that was Laurel and Hardy uh, uh and he reused the title for the, for this mm. uh going with the sort of animal theming of the previous right. Marx Brothers movies
2: Animal um, Crackers was it Horse Feathers was the one we didn't watch
1: I think uh yes
2: And now Duck Soup, which, so I guess the, the backstory is that the previous Marx Brothers movies that we watched, I was not a big fan of. And so I was very curious to see how the, how I would react to this one, which is like the one that everyone's like, ah, it's, it's, it's the best. It's their best stuff. Uh Uh-huh. And I thought it was pretty good.
1: Oh, oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) I mean, you know, so when we watched Animal Crackers after watching Coconuts, I was like, oh, Glenn's going to hate this (laughs) because it's exactly (laughs) the same. And I wasn't feeling that as strongly watching this movie, Mm -hmm. but also uh, it feels like more or less the same thing, but just maybe done better.
2: Right. It is like the setup and the structure of it. It is like they haven't changed their shtick at all in this movie, really, like. Their thing of, like, it takes place all in one location. Uh, Groucho is, like, some kind of wacky authority figure who shouldn't be in a place of authority. (laughs) Um, Like, all their character archetypes are the same. The the sort of taking jabs at, like, high society are the same. But this one just feels a little more polished and a bit more, a bit funnier, I guess. (laughs) Like, it's just, I think it all kind of works a lot better in this movie than it has in, in the earlier ones. It feels like they're, they're working out all of the, it's like, they're basically making the same movie over and over again, and it's getting a little bit better each time.
1: Uh, yeah, that is true, right? Like, and they're even, um they're even using Margaret Dumont again, uh, yeah. who, yeah, really is like, d- does feel very essential to the formula, much more mm-hmm. essential than Zeppo. Uh, yeah. Zeppo,
2: and, once again, is like, he's also
1: there. Yeah and this is the last movie with zeppo he uh oh really yeah he got he got sick of doing all this and So And <laughs> i mean uh, fair uh the what i was hearing is that like zeppo was kind of was quite funny and did have like uh a lot to contribute but because he took over from uh because he took over from their previous brother, who was the straight man, he was kind of relegated to the straight man. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, he just felt unfulfilled in, in these Marx brothers situations. So yeah, he went, he went and did something else after this. Yeah.
2: Uh, I also think it, this movie has like, is almost like feels accidentally very like, um, timely. Hmm. Um, cause I think their previous movies are just are basically just kind of satirizing like high society and like wealthy american culture kind of. Mhm. Whereas this is sort of has a broader scope of like international politics and like european countries. Right. And so it feels very I the impression I get having seen it is that it's mostly making fun of like World War 1. And the sort of, like, politics leading up to World War One, and, like, the state of Europe kind of, like, around that. But because it was released in 1933, it feels very kind of, like, uh, not entirely, um, what's the word I'm thinking of, like, uh, prophetic, I guess. But it's, like, it feels timelier than I think it was even intended to.
1: You mean timely as far as, like, the lead up to World War Two?
2: Yeah. It's, I like... It does kind of feel like it's maybe taking a couple jabs at, like, fascism also. But I, I wonder how much of that was, like, on their mind making this movie versus just sort of, like, in hindsight.
1: Uh, Yeah, hard to say. It I, it does, like... Uh, you know, I, I do like this a lot better than the extremely amateurish, like, Animal Crackers <laughs> and, and Coconuts. But it is a movie where it's just, like... A bunch of bits happen with a, yeah. with a certain yeah. coat of with a different coat of paint on them, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and this coat of paint is uh, rather than uh, I don't know a hotel owner or an a, 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 an adventurer. It is uh, a guy who is uh, the appointed the leader of <laughs> Uh and then there are some spies around as well, which uh, are yeah. played by Chico and Harpo. Some some uh,
2: very effective competent spies as yeah. you can imagine
1: <laughs> yeah you could consider this political i think there is like political there are political aspects to it mm-hmm. but it's hard for me to see it as more than like a coat of paint in this movie
2: yeah it it does kind of feel like oh and th- that's like the theme for this one it doesn't necessarily feel like they they have any sort of big take that they have on like the politics of the day they were just like i don't know what if we have some like soldiers and pointy helmets in this one
1: right yeah I, I think maybe like one of the most uh salient uh political ideas is just like the um how how flippantly a lot of the political figures will treat like ah let's go to war like let's mm-hmm. let's let's do a war, yeah. which is sort of i feel like
2: primarily satirizing world War one but little did they know that they were
1: actually satirizing a future war also well kind of. i mean World War 1 was definitely a lot more pointless than World War 2. Mm, true. Uh on that note,
2: I did also read that uh Mussolini banned the movie immediately, which the Marx brothers loved. They were like <laughs> hilarious. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there are uh, one one of my favorite <laughs> one of my favorite lines from from this uh which felt very like almost the most modern joke in it mm. was uh I think it was um, it was Chico going like, shh, this is spy stuff. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of, like, uh, I think the dialogue in this one feels a little slower, so the jokes land a little bit better. There's another, a, a yeah. lot of, like, really kind of classic Marx Brothers wordplay in this that I did think was very funny. Like, ah, oh, we need a standing army. Why a standing army? Because they've got to save money on chairs. <laughs> It's just, like, it's all very dumb, but I I did like it this time more.
1: I don't get it. That's exactly the kind of stuff that you hated before.
2: <laughs> I don't know. I just, like, I I think before it was, like, it made me roll my eyes, and for some reason in this one, I think it, it landed better. Like, mm. it, was, it was delivered better. It was, like, the timing of it works better. I think they're just getting better at, like, performing on camera and, right. like, editing it properly, and it, now it's actually being funny.
1: And this is also the first one that we've seen that hasn't been an adaptation. It was specifically mm-hmm. scripted.
2: Yeah, I think that probably helps also because it, it does feel less like it's like playing to a, a a live audience and more it's like playing to a camera. The, one of my favorite jokes in this happens pretty early on, and there's it's a great like one two three rule of threes joke, which is that uh, Harpo will be riding a motorcycle up for for Groucho to jump into the sidecar, and. Twice in a row, Groucho gets into the sidecar and then Harpo just rides the motorcycle away with the while the sidecar stays still. Which is like, yeah, good, good funny joke. But then the third time, uh he gets in he uh Groucho gets on the motorcycle and then Harpo drives just the sidecar away. Yeah, he which did, is, Groucho
1: thinks that he he has defeated yeah. Harpo, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, also
2: I I just realized I wrote down why does nobody simply murder harpo? <laughs> <laughs> like he's always bothering everyone around him. Everyone gets really mad at him. But everyone is just kind of fine like no one does anything about it. He's just like causing chaos and everyone's just sort of like huffing and puffing.
1: Harpo's bits are the kind of bits that I wish I did more in the world. <laughs> I wish I I wish I wish you I want, you want more... to grab
2: people's legs more.
1: I <laughs> Specifically, uh, grab their hand and use it to hold up my leg <laughs> and then make them wonder why they're holding up my leg. I, I, uh, I've tried some Harpo bits, uh, in the last couple of days and it yeah. didn't work out very well. Ah, that's, that's a shame. <laughs> it is fundamentally annoying. You didn't,
2: uh, ruin their lemonade stands.
1: <laughs> yeah, do like a grape stomping in the, in the lemonade tank. Yeah. Uh, um some other kind of like, uh. I don't know, cause I I really love the Groucho quips, uh, yeah. Where it's like, uh, like he's telling people to get in the car, and he says, "If you run out of gas, get Eth- get Ethel. If Ethel runs out, get Mabel." Like, <laughs> good stuff. He's got a nose like a bloodhound, and the rest of his face ain't that good either. Like, that's a solid joke. <laughs> it is, yeah.
2: That's it, like, I think the writing in this one just feels a little stronger than than the other ones that we watched. I still think the editing in this is kind of janky there's definitely some edits in this that are like oof yikes um but in general it's i mean this is not a movie that's really built around editing or even like visual gags that much it's mostly like slapstick performance and and wordplay there's the 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 mirror scene is very good i think that's sort of like a famous bit from this movie
1: that's right yeah where a bunch of where harpo and chico end up impersonating groucho by putting yeah. on a mask of, he he does um, make himself very easy easy to be impostered um he's wearing a disguise already yeah <laughs> <laughs> he's wearing the classic disguise of a yeah. groucho marks mask <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah then
2: harpo and chico are are pretending to be him as if in a mirror and sort of mirroring all his movements as he's standing in a doorway. And then the other one will enter the room. And so then there's two of him. Stuff like that. It's, it's, it's very, very cartoonish, but I think, I think that stuff worked pretty well. Another yeah. thing of like a joke purely for a joke's sake, which is very much like a, a Groucho or not a Groucho thing, a, a Marx Brothers thing of like, this joke doesn't need to make any logical sense. We're just going to put it in there because it's funny. Right. Which is another thing that kind of i kind of a a, a um a thing I have against Mark Brothers movies that I think worked better in this one is like the jokes felt like they had a bit more intention they a lot of them mm-hmm. felt less like they were there just for their own sake, kind of
1: yeah, one aspect that did kind of feel like it was there for its own sake, which continues on from the other stuff is the musical parts mm-hmm. uh which this movie is like a musical for you know. 10 minutes and then right. stops being a musical <laughs> specifically this kind of opening song, introducing, uh, Groucho. Um, yeah. Playing, and, uh,
2: Rufus T Firefly, which is a great name.
1: That's a good name. Yeah. Uh, and the song has a very like Gilbert and Sullivan vibe to it. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that I really like along with that political commentary we were talking about earlier is, uh, he, him describing all the things that he's going to do as ruler. uh, And uh, anytime (laughs) he starts off saying like, Oh, if people, uh, if people rebel against me, pop goes the weasel, you know? (laughs) And then he starts saying, uh, uh, if they, uh, you know, if they, if they do some really innocuous thing that I don't like pop goes the weasel. It's a brutal dictator.
2: Yeah, but it's that's the thing where it's like, "Oh, what a, you know, what a cut up." And then I'm like, "In the context of this movie when it came out, like that is a very dark joke." Yeah. And I don't I don't know if that's how it was intended,
1: you know. I I think it was. It, it seems it seems like this not nod to some extreme darkness. Mm. We're at the end where we're closing in on the end of the of the pre-code era. We'll yeah. see how uh how the Marx brothers fare when they can't make uh references to death and sex
2: yeah which yeah they they do a lot of in this movie
1: i actually one
2: one instance where i think the editing of this movie is very good is right at the end after war has been declared and there's this like wild madcap scenes of war happening like it's like every single individual shot Gradcho's uniform changes like he'll be in like a revolutionary war uniform and then like the next shot he's in like a civil war uniform and then like oh, next I didn't shot, he's that. wearing like a completely different uniform and it's like every time you see him his uniform is completely different just like between different shots and it's that's very funny <laughs> pretty good <laughs> yeah. pretty
1: good fun time
2: apparently this was not nearly as well received as the last few marx brothers movies like at the time which i think is kind of ironic because now it's like considered one of their best mm-hmm. but it was like kind of seen as like a weaker installment and like wasn't as successful as their other ones Um, but speaking of musical numbers
1: yeah let's talk about the gold digger or sorry gold diggers of 1933 indeed uh this movie was the biggest surprise to me of, of I
2: think of it probably was for me too, because I really liked this movie a lot.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was honestly shocked at this movie being any good. My expectations were so low just because <laughs> I was thinking about the Broadway melody too much.
2: <laughs> right. Which is sort of like, uh, yeah, I think that was our kind of only real reference point for like early 1930s showbiz musical. But this one is quite a bit better. I mean, it went from being, like, Broadway Melody is a bad movie. This is a very good movie,
0: I think.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Directed by, uh, co-directed, I guess, or, like, different scenes are directed by, all of the kind of narrative stuff is directed by Mervyn Leroy, who also did Little Caesar. Mm-hmm. And then all the musical numbers are directed by uh, Busby Berkeley. Heard of him? And that stuff is, like, I think this is the first actual Busby Berkeley musical movie that I've seen, Mm -hmm. But it's, it's funny how, how familiar I am with that name of just like, oh yeah, Berkeley musical. That's just like a reference point of like, that's what this other thing is like. Yeah. And also seeing that sort of very distinctive kind of uh, visual style and like the way that that stuff is shot and edited and like the production design of it. I'm like, oh, this is, I'm so familiar with like this style, but just from like watching The Simpsons and, like, Looney Tunes, and, like, things that have been, or, like, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, like, things yeah. that have, like, taken the Busby Berkeley style of, like, a musical number. But this is, it's funny then now going back and, like, actually watching a movie that is original.
1: Yeah, I'd, like, vaguely heard the name Busby Berkeley, but, um, I scrolled through his filmography, and I was really not familiar with any of the titles.
0: Right, uh,
2: it's, like, the actual movies I'm like not that familiar with, but like the like the style of musical number in this movie is like oh it's this it's like really intricate choreography and like giant sets and uh like overhead shots of like dancers forming different shapes and things.
1: Yeah, I mean like I you know I will say that the musical segments in this movie uh they are calling back to some of the best mid twenties. Uh, uh, kind of using cinematic like imagery in like a painterly way, and like, mm-hmm. like, like in the Last Laugh or something like that, like just making interesting shapes and and <laughs> and images with what you can do on screen. Mm-hmm. And so this movie, in some of these, some of these musical segments, more than others, uh, but like some of them are just. Creating these like paintings out yeah. of people, they are like uh, staggering to to watch. Yeah, like I was literally like my jaw hanging on the floor looking yeah. at some of these sequences. I was like, I was like getting getting a little misty just yeah. at like the beauty of it, you know. And
2: then they're also like at times very funny or very sad or like very dramatic. Like there's so much done with the musical numbers in this movie that it's like completely. Most of them are like completely outside of the actual narrative of the movie, which we'll get into in a second. But like, well,
1: the idea with the musical numbers is they are from the musical that they are putting on, right? Uh, in the in the the movie, but they are clearly like these kind of amplified, impossible to do in reality, but like uh, uh versions of these musical numbers, right? It's like it's not necessarily pretending this is what people are looking at on stage it is just like as we do a musical number we go into like a liminal fantasy zone Mm -hmm. where uh we can express ourselves with music and dance in in the most imaginative way possible yeah i think it
2: might be the only maybe the only instance of this that i've ever seen because it's like normally in, in musicals there's either like all the musical numbers are like diegetic and exist within it's like Either they exist in, like, a musical reality or, like, all the musical numbers are putting on a show. Whereas this movie kind of combines the two, where it's like, we're putting on a show, but then once they do the actual musical number for the, like, the live show that they're doing, it does shift into this, like, magical reality. Um, Just kind of portraying that and then kind of shifting back once it's over.
1: Yeah, some some of the images from this movie are just yeah so cool so so yeah. cool and it, and it's not just images too it's like creating moving image tableaus yeah of, of people moving yeah. around in i'm thinking sp- like the the images that i love the most are uh toward the end of the movie mm-hmm. where there are some uh and we were the yeah, we should really get into the structure of this movie soon. <laughs> but uh, there's a part with um, some like marching soldiers, and they are going like in an arch uh, across mm-hmm. the screen, and then they're kind of moving like across various planes of this archway with like a centerpiece in the middle, and they're in silhouette in the background, and oh, uh, yeah. and uh, there's another part where there are some people dancing. Uh, in, like, a complete black void with these, like, really bright white dresses uh, that create these just, like, really amazing shapes everywhere. And then they, like, take out some, like, neon violins. The neon uh, glowing
2: violins oh. are amazing. <laughs> and I, I don't really know how they did that, other than maybe just, like, literally making, like, neon bulbs. Yeah, I think they just the made violence. 40 neon violence The coolest thing in the world. This movie's also uh, just a, a funny comedy, outside of these amazing musical tableaus. Yeah, yeah. I think the title of this movie, I was like, oh boy, here we go. This is gonna be, like, I don't know, I kind of expected this movie to be less, uh... I don't know, more sexist than it is, maybe?
1: You know, I wasn't even thinking about that because I was like, "I this is old times and they probably don't have the same use of gold diggers that that we have today, but it's like, it oh, is it's the a, same use. Right,
2: it's like, oh, it's about people uh, mining. <laughs>
1: yeah, or something <laughs> it's, like that. It's not.
2: It is the, the sort of common modern term, but it this movie is based on a play from the 20s where that terminology originates, like... This is the story that invented that phrase of a woman who marries a man for his money i guess is the 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 gist of it,
1: but it's it's also uh it's not that cynical it's not that uh uh yeah it's it's not that like yeah sexist as as you were saying it is really a movie that is <laughs> it's really a movie about like some people who are poor and uh, find a way to enjoy themselves messing with rich people.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This movie is maybe of all the things we watch, like the most that is like directly about the great depression, which is also super interesting. I didn't expect from it at all to be like, that's like a major theme of this whole movie is that it's like about people who are out of work in show business because the, their shows keep getting shut down because like the, the guys ring is is in debt and having to avoid the 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 landlord because they don't have money to pay rent
1: yeah I, that the the opening Ste- song Steal and
2: milk. <laughs> the uh
1: yeah it very much like deals with the depression uh which is seems to be rare in movies set that that were made during the depression uh they're more escapist i guess Mm. Uh, and this movie also uh, is the only non-crime movie that I've seen to acknowledge speakeasies too.
0: Mm. A speakey uh, is a what speak-y they say they call it. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: but yeah, the opening song of this movie, "We're in the Money," uh, is this almost like fantasy of the end of the Depression, mm-hmm. uh, and they they talk specifically about the like. Ah, the depression's over, we can look the landlord in the eye, no. We got money. Lines. Yeah. We're in the money. Which, Which is
2: I had heard that song tons of times. Did not know it came from this movie.
1: I heard that song tons of times, and I was like, oh, this is just in the culture, but I realized that speaking of The Simpsons before, it's just that the Simpsons has referenced this movie three times within their like golden seasons.
2: Okay, see that's I I'm I assume you looked that up and you just didn't didn't just know that off the dome, although You being you, that wouldn't surprise me. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like there's so much in this movie where I was just like, I've seen this in The Simpsons for sure. Yeah. Like, and I think that's so funny that it's like just the way that like culture is forms and reforms that like, this is an old movie from the 30s. All the people who wrote The Simpsons are like nerds who grew up watching old movies. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so they put all this stuff from like, 30s and 40s movies into the simpsons and then we grew up watching the simpsons and so we're all like oh yeah like uh, musical numbers and this and that and then it's it's so funny now to like go back and watch the sources of all these things and be like wait a minute i, d- I thought the simpsons invented all this stuff
1: this is not the only movie we're going to talk about that has extensive simpsons oh yeah i i i have i know yeah <laughs>
2: I I definitely have multiple other Simpsons references to talk
1: about. (laughs) So, yeah, like the rough plot is that there are a group of um, uh, actresses who um, are kind of showgirls in Broadway reviews and they live together. Uh, They all all live
2: in one big bed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And the opening scene is uh the kind of last attempt that they had to uh to do a musical that got shut down like right in the middle of uh right in the middle of dress rehearsals yeah uh this guy this guy Barry who I or sorry Barney who like I I love his vibe uh <laughs> he is uh he he's always telling people to scram.
2: <laughs> yeah, he's always like, but he's all, he's like such a kind of classical like showbiz producer character where he's like, all right, here's a plan. We're gonna we're gonna have a,
1: a, a you know a hundred dancing girls in this thing. It's gonna it's gonna be huge. <laughs> but he he uh he comes to visit uh because they think they have another gig and and true to his showbiz producer ways he he goes what what's that piano sound over there that's (laughs) that's magic bring that guy over here (laughs) and so they um what one of the four girls are uh is in love with this guy that's kind of across the way uh who is a singer and piano player and they uh eventually bring him in and uh a whole musical based on his his uh, yeah. music
0: he
2: he writes a bunch of songs for this new musical but refuses to sing in the musical
1: and he won't say why he also like mysteriously appears with the fifteen thousand dollars they need to uh to fund the musical mm. uh when when their backers drop out it's like oh is this guy into crime what's he doing
2: right so then the 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 showgirls are are Talking about it, like he's got all this mysterious money. Like, what's what's the deal there? And they they think that he's robbed a bank, and so doesn't want to perform in the show because then pe- people will see him and know,
1: and he'll get caught by the by the coppers.
2: Um, yeah, and and, and
1: pa- Polly, who's in love with him, yeah. is like, it's like, it's okay. I'll love you even if you're a Toronto bank robber. <laughs> yeah,
2: she says, if he goes to prison for this, I'll visit him there. <laughs> When uh, Barney is talking about putting on the show, he's saying it's all about the depression, and uh, Trixie, who's the kind of comedian of the of the g- group, says we don't we won't have to rehearse that. There's a lot of other kind of like very '30s wordplay jokes in this in this movie, which yeah I enjoy. But the uh, the guy who's supposed to sing in the show uh, gets lumbago on the day they're opening, and so he can't perform. So Brad is forced into singing in the show
1: i've never heard the term lumbago
2: yeah uh. <laughs> it's lower back pain but it's i know it mainly from in red dead redemption 2 there's a character who always complains about it's lumbago i can't work i got lumbago
1: uh so brad finally agrees this is the 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 sexy uh neighbor. Uh he finally agrees to take on the ro- the main role and he's fantastic uh in it as as expected. Mm-hmm. But then uh, during the intermission, all these uh S- snoopy snoopy audience members go, Who is this guy? He seems familiar. Uh they they call up some of their informants and realize <laughs> that he is the the heir to a... Uh, A fortune in boston he's a he's part of a blue blood family in boston uh and that's where he got the money and they they say they print a big article saying famous rich boy uh uh slums it by being in a musical (laughs) a (laughs) massive
3: broadway musical
1: (laughs) and uh and the rest of the story is his family his brother and their kind of uh their lawyer uh, lawyer uh like trying to intervene between uh between brad and polly's relationship and trying to get brad off of the show because this is undignified yeah Uh, they say we cannot have you mixed up in this theater business (laughs) so uh and then the rest of the movie is like a lot of hijinks of them just like fucking with these rich people yeah really (laughs) yeah pretty much you nailed it like
2: they they don't really have an like an end game in mind. So much as just like <laughs> let's mess with these guys. These guys suck.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and like Brad's on board with it. He's like the cool yeah. rich guy who shuns his family. Yeah, he's like
2: uh, I want to I want to be in showbiz. And they're like show business. What what an undignified thing. You should be composing
1: classical music.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, I do really like the sort of how kind of exaggerated the like the wealthy brother and the lawyer are of just like oh 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 dear me like a, a theater what a what a horrible place
1: <laughs> yeah yeah I, you're watching the progress of their kind of like hoity-toity attitudes being broken down systematically mm-hmm. by all of the interactions between yeah. them and the showgirls and and brad including that's a lot of um uh Yeah, a lot of tricking them into thinking that uh, one person is another person and all this kind of stuff.
2: Right, because then Uh, Carol, who's another one of the, the showgirls, pretends to be Polly and kind of seduces Brad's brother because he thinks that she is Polly and he's trying to kind of seduce her away from his own brother to so he won't get married it's It's very it's complicated a
1: sel- It's a selfless act I'm going to I'm going yeah. to seduce my brother's fiance to prove to him that uh <laughs> to and prove then to him that he should go back to the yeah, world of rich it, people It kind of starts
2: with Carol and Trixie, who's the kind of like the comedian of the of the group of they are both kind of trying to seduce the brother and the lawyer just so they can get free stuff. Like they kind of trick them into buying them really expensive hats, and so then
1: they're like, "We got to keep this going." seventy-five dollar hats.
2: Which, which seventy-five dollar hat is like a five hundred dollar hat in the thirties.
1: Uh, I no, actually, it's even more than that. Okay. I uh, uh so seventy-five dollars for a hat would be uh quite a chunk of change now. It's nearly two thousand dollars in today's okay, money. Okay, there you go.
2: <laughs> Damn. But so yeah, there's a lot of like you like you
1: said a lot of hijinks. The person who um, falls victim to their to their uh, feminine wiles the most <laughs> quickly is is the lawyer P- Peabody. Peabody, uh, yeah, Peabody, and he uh, Trixie gives
2: him the nickname Fanny, which is very cheeky.
1: Yeah <laughs> they they get they get a few jokes out of the the Fanny yeah. line,
2: and he's he's very like like wiping his brow all the time. And it's like very flustered around, around all the gals.
1: Yeah. The, the, Brad's brother is initially like, you know, it takes him a while to kind of break down, but he's just, as soon as they show him affection, Peabody is just, oh, ha, ha. Yeah. And <laughs> the, 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 big, the biggest, the biggest line. Holding hat. <laughs> the, the biggest laugh that I got in this whole movie was like, you know, they, they're kind of done uh putting the moves on these guys they leave they they leave the scene and then Brad's brother just goes Peabody you're disgusting
2: <laughs> <laughs> I I also wrote down that line it's huge laugh for me but then as as uh right so like Brad's brother is like so disdainful of of like showgirls he thinks they're all like he thinks they're all cheap and vulgar as he p- puts it yeah and naturally because during this whole ruse that Carol is is putting on, um, Carol and, and, and the brother, what's the brother's name? Brad's brother's name? Yeah. J. Lawrence Bradford. Right. J. Lawrence Bradford uh, and Carol af- naturally end up kind of actually falling for each other despite each of them kind of trying to seduce the other one for like uh, less honest uh, intentions.
1: And it's uh, it's 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 very sweet. I feel like it it works. It's a yeah. it's a movie where people uh, almost Shakespearean, I guess, where <laughs> uh, uh, everybody is uh, every everybody's trying to trying to trick each other, uh, but then eventually they all pair up and they end up being happily married by the end. Uh, Trixie and Peabody uh were, end up finding the truth in their relationship, and then. Uh, the two of them, and and then Brad and and Polly are kind of just chilling the whole time, watching the whole thing, watching watching the chaos happening around them and <laughs> laughing at it. And if, uh, to the title, it, it's Peabody who is talking about like the type of the type of girls mm. that showgirls are, and and he calls them he says women of that type are chiselers, parasites, or we call them gold diggers. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I feel like this. This also this movie has some some fun like pre code stuff. It's not that kind of uh, salacious, but it is a little bit more than I'm used to seeing from old movies. Yeah, like definitely more so than than a, a haze code era movie.
1: Yeah, I mean there uh, there are weed references in this, or there is a weed reference in this Wait, movie. Wait, when? Uh, there's so I forget exactly the context. Somebody, uh, somebody says something kind of, kind of ridiculous, and they says, "What does he use? I'll smoke it too." <laughs> uh, <laughs> one of the ways that they are messing with Brad's brother is they he gets they get him really drunk at a speakeasy, uh, mm-hmm. and then they put him in Carol's bed, uh, to have him wake up in that bed not knowing how he got there. Very. You know, mm-hmm. very directly, <laughs> yeah, very directly implying uh, certain things that they might not be able to so directly imply later.
2: There's there's the big musical number "Petting in the Park," which has a lot of references to to doing it. There's some some kind heavy of heavy petting. There's some <laughs> uh, some like nude silhouettes in that dance number. There's fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but yeah, this movie was was real cool. Yeah. I liked it. I, Yeah, like I was saying, I had such low expectations, and I liked it a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, One kind of strange thing that... I don't know if this is the case with a lot of other musicals, but it seems like much of the musicals that have been coming out uh, have been... They've been about Broadway. They've either been Mm -hmm. like a filmed Broadway production, or they have been... Uh, this kind of backstage drama thing where the musical numbers are supposed to be the sort of amped-up versions of the diegetic musical numbers within the show. So we haven't yet seen a musical that just portrays a story and Mm -hmm. then, like, has musical numbers amplifying the story specifically. Other than,
2: like, I guess the Marx Brothers movies kind of
1: do that. Oh, you know what? Yeah, you're right. Never mind.
2: (laughs) (laughs) At least up until
1: duck soup those were all based on actual sage shows uh some of the previous ones were like horse feathers and uh monkey business might not have been mm. but yeah i guess one last note that i have about this movie is that in the opening we're in the money we're in the money song i think it's carol singing that right uh, i think
2: isn't i thought the opening song is sung by uh the other one Fay, who is played by ginger rogers I think is the singer during that one, but I I might, okay. be, I might be wrong.
1: Uh, Well, she st- starts singing part of the song in pig Latin. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, which is
2: <laughs> very weird, but it's sure. a weird
1: choice, uh, but it also just made me realize that uh, money in pig Latin sounds like anime. So <laughs> that's, that, that's the last thing that I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> anime you're waiting hey the anime <laughs>
2: <laughs> good note to end this discussion of this movie on another comedy from this year also dealing with uh high society and romance yeah is Design for living directed by ernst Lubitsch. We're finally getting back to watching some some of Lubitsch's hollywood pictures yeah. Which I don't think we've talked about yet, right? We've only talked about his his German silent stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's been a minute since we've checked in with Lubitsch. Yeah. Uh, I guess our the first movie we watched with him was well, 1918, something like yeah. that.
2: Now we're kind of in the era he's, I think, kind of most famous for.
1: Yeah, but he continues to be fantastic. Yeah. I loved this movie. Me too. This movie is so Good. <laughs> this movie
2: is really good and like i feel like deserves to be like watched more than it is like i this is a movie that i want to like recommend to people because yeah it's very good
1: this is uh another l- valiant entry into the uh fast talking 30s people mm-hmm. uh are are playfully mean to each other uh <laughs> genre and the dialogue in this is incredible it, Yeah, like the actors are so charismatic, and they just deliver these lines with these just wry smiles that just oh, they get me. Who mm. they get me?
2: Yeah. <laughs> also, I mean, the thing that this movie is like, I guess, most famous for probably is that it's about a throuple. Technically,
1: yes, a, a, a developing, uh, <laughs> a developing, thriving throuple. <laughs> yeah,
2: and I think, like some of. Ernst Lubitsch's other m- earlier movies, it, like it doesn't fully commit to like a like fully non traditional like romantic relationship. Like I think some of like I, like, I don't want to be a man. Does. does I think by the end it does. I think it's a little, it's left a little ambiguous, but I definitely take it to be like, oh yeah, they're a threepel now, and it, and it, they're all fine with that.
1: Yeah, this does follow as you're saying. It does follow in the Lubitsch tradition, or at least of movies of his that we've seen of like challenging gender and and sexuality yeah uh in in very direct ways that i think yeah are are quite impressive and daring for yeah. the time
2: this is like a poster movie for pre-code hollywood i feel like mm-hmm. um this is a great example of like the kinds of movies that were being made in the early 30s before the Hayes code cracked the whip and uh it, it's making me like anticipate 1934 1935 movies that are like postcode and be like god damn it like these pre-code movies are so fun i'm so annoyed that this happened yeah <laughs> and we're like yeah. this is gonna go away but i'm i'm really excited to see like ernst Lubitsch movies that are made during the hayes code and like how he kind of will i'm sure circumnavigate those arbitrary rules and like still make fun stuff that is still kind of like challenging the societal norms
1: yeah, yeah. Um and yeah, in this movie, just like the ways that they uh challenge this stuff we can we can get into a little bit uh, like after after establishing some of the plot here, mm-hmm. which is uh the movie's set primarily in France or yep. initially in France, uh and there are three Americans who meet each other or two two best buds of 18 years uh and then uh, they're they're on a train car, and uh, a spunky lady uh, appears and uh, and starts razzing them. She starts uh, <laughs> she starts she starts harassing them in 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 charming ways. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, and they both uh, simultaneously fall in love with her. Yeah, like uh, immediately point...
2: simultaneously. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> to the point that they're uh, immediately jeopardizing their their. A decades-long friendship over mm-hmm. over this lady. the The
2: two best buds are played by Gary Cooper, who we see in, in a few things, and Frederick March, who was in um uh I mean really go to, We go to hell. He was also the male lead in that movie.
1: Oh, I didn't and, recognize um, him from that. Yeah,
2: much like in that movie, he also plays a uh, a playwright who is down on his luck in this <laughs> podcast he says i write unproduced plays when he introduces himself which is uh, a good line a funny thing about when the, the kind of three main characters all meet they they're in france and so they start speaking french to each other and then they realize that uh everyone's american and so the two the two men uh, to start singing the national anthem and saluting to say that they're <laughs> Americans, which I think is how every American should introduce themselves in other countries. Just like if you meet another American, you have to like salute and sing the national anthem. It's
1: hilarious. I think by that point I was just so sold on this, on this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the, when they meet each other in the train at the beginning, the banter is already so good uh, and the yeah. comedy hits so hard and the rest of this movie, I just like, I like my face was sore from just like smiling the entire yeah. time. Yeah. It was, it was just joyful. The, every moment.
2: Um, maybe this is just my own kind of, this movie's definitely a lot more like highbrow than the Marx brothers, mm-hmm. but I also think it's much, I think this movie's much funnier than Duck soup. So yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. I think a lot of that's just writing. Like it's like all the jokes come out of character. They don't feel as kind of random and slapdash. There are some kind of similar like wordplay things, like uh, like what's your salary in round numbers?
1: In round numbers, zero. <laughs> <laughs> but so it's it's based on a play, and I think a lot of these um, a lot of these kind of jokes feel very like stagey jokes, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. like stage banter jokes. Yeah. Uh yeah, I think I think so much of it works, but also like a lot of it is owed to just the charisma of the of the main yeah. characters. Yeah.
2: All all three leads in this movie have insane charisma. I think Gary Cooper was the one that kind of stood out to me because I'm I'm used to seeing Gary Cooper in more like dramatic roles, I guess. Like I, I think of like High Noon or something from later on. But he's very funny in this movie.
1: Yeah, no, he's they're all they're all great. Uh yeah once they realize that they're all falling in love and it uh, all kind of uh they're th- the best friends end up starting to like try and spite each other and hate each other, and they're mm-hmm. like we can't be doing this like we gotta we're we're friends we're not gonna let some dame tear us apart <laughs> uh, and uh eventually, and then she comes by and they they both fall apart again uh and then Jilda uh, who is uh, the the woman they meet she is she says she finds herself in a position that men usually find themselves in themselves <laughs> in uh which is that she's in love with two people and has to make the decision but can't so some yeah some commenting on gender roles and stuff there of uh you know kind of traditionally like it's right. a, like women are like they choose one person and then men are trying to like you know talk to everybody at once kind of thing but she just can't get over the fact that she loves both of them equally, and they can't get over how much they love her uh, in spite of each other. Uh, and they agree uh, that they'll live together as, as friends, and uh, another kind of very pre-code moment is they just specifically, using the word, say, no sex. Yeah. Uh-
2: <laughs> Which really stood out to me as, like, old movies don't say sex in them and yeah. other than pre-code movies. Right. And so it's like, this is also, this is another really good example of like how pre-code movies just feel more kind of alive because they're not hampered by a bunch of dumb arbitrary rules all the time. Yeah. But so, yeah, they, they come to a, a gentleman's agreement as they put it to like, they're going to live platonically. They're going to like platonically just have she can see both of them, but uh, they're going to keep it as platonic. And then, almost immediately, Tom, who's the playwright, played by Frederick March, gets... Uh, his play gets produced, and he has to go off to London to oversee his, his play. Leaving the other two just to kind of stew in sexual tension, which they does <laughs> which not last he, long. He wor-
1: yeah, he worries about when they leave. I love... Um also like he's going back and forth about trying to leave to london and this movie has so much um so much indecision in it mm-hmm. uh, it's it's so much about people like coming up with something and then like going oh no i shouldn't i shouldn't <laughs> and uh a scene the scene where he's leaving uh you know he's having this debate about whether he should go he decides to stay in paris and then smash cut to him leaving to london yeah. which...
2: there's a lot of really good like smash <laughs> cut jokes in that. Like there's one earlier when it's like they're kind of establishing how Gilda is in love with both of them and one of them like two camera almost says like, ah, oh, I'm in love, and then it like cuts to her making out with the other one. <laughs> uh
1: I, I think it like this this stuff kind of plays into the theming of the movie too, of like it being about indecision mm-hmm. and and then uh showing that with the with the editing as yeah. well.
2: And kind of like contradiction too. Like, yeah yeah
1: but yes that they had the gentleman's agreement Gilda says i'm not a gentleman <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> like uh, like the the same night pretty much he's like well i'm not a gentleman so <laughs> and and yes yeah, so they get together then mm-hmm. tom's sad then right well because tom doesn't know that
2: until later like he's at the premiere of his play and he finds out um and does not pr- enjoy his premiere at all and so then it's like he returns to to Paris after a period of time. At this
1: point, he's kind of like forgiven them, basically, or for, forgiven. He's forgiven his friend because he knows how hopelessly in love both of them are. Yeah, uh, but he hasn't forgiven Jilda uh, for for what she's done. So uh, he he gets back to Paris uh, and after yelling at each other for a while they immediately uh, they immediately hook up yeah <laughs>
2: while while Gary Cooper is out of town and so then when he comes back they're like oh we got it now we got to tell him that we hooked up while he was out of town and some someone says like oh he's he's going to break something and they say we have to tell him the truth regardless of what happens to the furniture <laughs> which is also a good line and then later they they do tell him and he is angry and just off screen, you hear the sound of breaking dishes and they just kind of nod to each other. Like, yeah, we we knew this would happen.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so there's a, like, there's a lot of back and forth in this movie about like who's with who and everything. And, but like, it, it's all this kind of, they respect each other, but they are completely incapable of, <laughs> of yeah. holding back their feelings for each other. Jilda eventually tries to kind of, solve the problem by leaving the situation entirely mm-hmm. and uh, and marrying her nerd uh, uh, sycophant uh, Right, who, this
2: guy Plunkett, who is kind of like <laughs> her like boss manager guy caretaker like, Yeah, he says caretaker, yeah. which is like a very vague role. I think early on someone kind of like makes fun of him for like not marrying her or like hooking up with her one of them says, uh, like, oh, he never got to first base, which I'm assuming is, like, the base system, <laughs> which I also, I don't, when was that established? Like, was that a That's, thing in the 1930s? That Did too, people refer yeah. to, like, baseball bases as, like, levels of, like, sexual encounter? I don't know.
1: I, yeah, it's the term gold diggers, bases, uh, like, these are things that existed longer than I thought. I think the thing that throws me a little bit with some of these older movies is that they, uh, the word they use for making out is making love, mm-hmm. which, uh, <laughs> which is not the same as, as it, as it became. But, uh, but yeah, she is eventually extremely unhappy with, uh, with this guy, this mm-hmm. compromise, uh, this guy and, Plunkett who sucks. Yeah. He is, is who
2: she decides to, to marry and is, it's immediately a bad a bad idea.
1: <laughs> she he he is very much like about keeping up airs with the with the rich people around him or whoever like is interested in in the whatever thing. Yeah. Uh, so like he has a party and he's like, oh, you've got to be interested in concrete, Jilda. Well, like also, this guy is the number one man in concrete.
2: On on their wedding night, he keeps trying to like kind of get her to go to bed with him, and she is like, no. Like he keeps saying, "I have an appointment tomorrow morning," and she's like, "All right, go, go, go to bed by yourself." And he just like sheepishly go to bed by himself. <laughs> yeah, he's throwing this like fancy high society party that Jilda hates because it's terrible. Because he's trying to introduce her to all of the concrete magnates.
1: Yeah. Oh, oh, the other thing. Sorry, the other thing on on uh, on their wedding day was he asks her if she loves him. And she says, like, you don't ask that on your wedding day. <laughs> like, like, it's either too early or too late for you right. to ask me yeah. that. Uh, which was a good way of her dodging the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, yeah, this is, you know, probably a year later or something like that. And then uh, Tom and George end up showing up at this party. Yeah, they, and... they
2: they crashed his high society tuxedo party. Uh,
1: And then... Where everyone is playing 20
2: questions. <laughs>
1: oh my God, 20 questions. Uh,
2: Plunkett loves 20 questions. And I feel like Ernst Lubitsch hates 20 questions because he's like, what's the worst thing that can happen at a party is playing 20 questions.
1: And literally this it's so ridiculous. Like him running to every room in the house going, we're playing 10 questions. We're playing 20 questions. Come on over. <laughs> and then everybody's like, Oh God, we're playing 20 questions. It's so exciting. It's 1933. Yeah. And this is exciting.
2: And Jilda is like, if I play 20 questions, I'm going to shoot myself.
1: <laughs> uh, I, sometimes I, I, when I, when I throw a party, I feel like, uh, like Plunkett here because I'm just yeah. like everybody. Everybody's got to be happy. We gotta yeah. gotta run over here, yeah. make sure this happens, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Tom and George crash the party and uh and meet Jilda up in her room. Uh, and they eventually all realize this was silly. We shouldn't have been mad at each other. We should all just uh become a thruple. We should mm-hmm. all just uh, you should leave Plunkett. Because we knew that wasn't serious in the first place, and uh, you should be with the two of us and we're gonna we're gonna love you both at the same time. Yeah, we're both gonna love you at the same time.
2: Because like it ends with them saying like all right, we're gonna like they say like gentleman's agreement and everyone's like, okay, gentleman's agreement, but I I feel like that could be interpreted either as them agreeing to live together platonically as per their original agreement or it's a reference to the fact that that agreement immediately went out the window and that they should just agree to be in actual trouble.
1: I think it's like a winking thing with a gentleman's yeah. agreement because right after they say that, uh, she kisses one of them and then kisses the other one, yeah. uh, and and that's how the movie ends. Is they're riding away in a car and they all just uh, they all just polly smooched each other. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um.
2: There is a line when uh when Gilda is yelling at Plunkett where she says, uh, your whole flock of eagle bowers, eagle bower being the the family of concrete magnates. (laughs) But it's said quickly enough that I legitimately thought the line was, your whole fucking eagle bowers. (laughs) And I was like, wait, is there, did they just drop an F-bomb in this movie? Like pre-code is going hard, but I put on subtitles and it was flock of, so.
1: The only, um, the most extreme language we've seen in the pre-code movie has been hell's angels and it really mm-hmm. has not been matched since yeah. then
2: where they they say damn
1: they say "goddamn," and they yeah. say son of a bitch
2: yeah so yeah this movie made it through the, the Hayes code existed when this movie was made but it just wasn't really as enforced as it would be like a year or two later um this movie was however banned by uh something called the legion of decency which i had never <laughs> heard of but it is a uh a a Christian group from the nineteen thirties that I guess existed to try to keep decency alive. Um and they were not a fan of this picture.
1: Uh not surprised.
2: Yeah. But I am. I think it's a good one.
1: Yeah. I I yeah, I love this movie. It's it's so good. It's, I really it's wanna so, it's so so funny and yeah. it's so charming. It's it's great.
2: It's like surprisingly progressive for when it came out. Um, I feel like this movie would be progressive now. Like, I still don't think like a romantic comedy about polyamory is like, it's not like a common thing. I mean, I guess any romantic comedy now is uncommon, and it's like, oh my god, someone made a romantic comedy. (laughs) Um, I really want to seek out, even if not for the show, like I want to watch more Ernst Lubitsch movies because there's just such a kind of all of the stuff that we've watched from him has this really kind of infectiously fun tone to it yeah um and it's very it's very cheeky and
1: uh yeah yeah i think if you were to show people like anybody an old movie like this would be something that could scratch at modern uh Mm -hmm. you know modern sensibilities yeah uh there's nothing about this movie that feels like you're watching something too old yeah yeah changing gears a whole bunch Yeah, I Uh, guess, I guess
2: we kind of, there's no real clean transition, I guess, to the next movie.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, it is like, as per, I'm talking about The Testament of Dr. Mabuza, directed by Fritz Lang, who has said, is like very outspoken about, this movie is about, uh, Nazis and like Nazis taking over Germany and kind of like the, the, the fear and like, um, yeah, just the 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 bad vibes that that brings with it.
1: Yeah, it it is it is about like it it it's reaching at some kind of like fundamental anxiety that you would be feeling as a German citizen at the time. Yeah, though it is kind of in line with what Fritz Lang has been doing, which is ping ponging back and forth between seriousness and pulp, mm-hmm. and like this is definitely pulp. Yeah, uh, this like. M is a very like dark, serious movie. Yeah, for sure. And then like, and and there's a character like the police inspector character is like held over from the movie M, Mm -hmm. but in this movie he's in like a proto James Bond, like proto Roger Moore James Bond, you know? Right. Yeah. But yeah, like spies, it's very, it's very like you know, specter and and Mm -hmm. secret agents and this movie feels like
2: spies. And M had a baby, kind of. Like Yeah, yeah. It's like the, the pulpy like supervillain stuff from Spies meets the kind of like more grounded like crime procedural stuff from M. Yeah. This movie premiered in Budapest, Hungary, because it was immediately banned in Germany. Like before it was even released, pretty like it, it did not play in Germany. They had to have the premiere in a different country. Because uh yeah, the 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 Nazi propaganda machine was not a fan of this picture
1: yeah i believe this is the last movie that fritz lang made in germany yes he uh before like, moving to the u.s immediately
2: after this movie i think he he left his wife uh von harbu and moved to the u.s kind of like under threat of death like i know that um uh, goebbels tried to get fritz lang to be like the head of the nazi propaganda machine like he was like we want you to like head the like the nazi film industry and fritz lang was like uh no thank you and so then he like had to kind of flee germany in the night almost because it was like he had people like staking out his house and things like that
1: now yeah. we had kind of made some assumptions i think in previous episodes that uh he left his wife because of her association with nazis but I was reading up on Thea von Harbaugh, who wrote this movie. This was her final collaboration with him, too. They mm-hmm. they broke up like during the production of the movie, and it's a little unclear exactly what her associations with Nazis mm. is. Uh, she stayed in Germany during the Nazi regime and made collaborated on films with the mm-hmm. Nazis. Uh, the specific reason that he left her was, I guess, Fritz Lang was like always was always like going after other ladies and uh and so she finally did they kind of mm. you know they they knew what was going on but she finally did she and then fritz Lang found her with another director and <laughs> uh and then he called it off uh so even though he's uh not the Nazi in this relationship he is a bit he's not not a scoundrel oh no here. yeah he was for <laughs> sure a
2: scoundrel i mean he like on his Wikipedia page, there's stuff like he might have murdered one of his previous wives. We don't know. Like, there's... Fritz Lang was was a bit of a a scoundrel, for sure. I think scoundrel even is, like, too playful of a word. Like, he might have been a real piece of shit. I don't know. But but this movie is... Uh, I'm a fan. Yeah, it's a fun one. I didn't really expect this movie to be, I guess, what it is. I mean, this movie is a sequel to dr mabuza the gambler which is which we we missed we missed because it's four hours long but that movie is about a super villain who like uses hypnosis and like commits all these crimes and then gets caught at the end and then this movie is picking up where he has been and like this movie was made like 10 years after that and it's like in real time he has been locked up for 10 years in an insane asylum
1: which is cool yeah
2: I expected this movie to be like, oh, he's going to break out of prison and like resume his crime empire, but I think the movie is... You kind of want to
1: think that for a while. The movie
2: is way more interesting than that, because it's more like he is... He hypnotizes his doctor into, like, becoming the new
1: Dr. Mabuza after he dies. Which is crazy. I I wonder if it was, like, how much of it was hypnotizing and how much of it was... uh... The the things that Dr. Mabuza wrote in his his journals were so uh, insane that they broke the mind of his therapist.
2: Right, it's like, it's kind of that too, but it's like, Dr. Mabuza is such a, like, brilliant mind that is also insane and evil that just, like, by being around him, it, like, corrupts you.
1: It's like a Harley Quinn situation. (laughs) Right,
2: but it's like he's almost transferring, like, his own... His, his criminal essence. mind yeah his own essence into his psychiatrist
1: we see dr mabuza like die in yeah. this or like a, a carcass of and a i'm like cadaver. oh he faked yeah. his
2: death and it's like no he really does
1: die but
2: then it's but, like, like he
1: lives on yeah through uh through, through his ideas the... and his yeah.
2: plans and plots
1: so while he was in the asylum he was like frenzied scared scrawling all of these plans, very, very meticulous plans for crime operations. Mm-hmm. This is reading this, and also like uh uh like his philosophy on spreading chaos through the world. Mm-hmm. And uh and that is the testament of Dr. Boost, the titular yeah. testament. His kind of last will and testament, yeah, it was so powerful that he his empire was able to continue on without him. And so his In a sort of, like, Videodrome, Brian Oblivion fashion, (sighs) the psychiatrist uh, ends up taking the mantle of Dr. Mabuza, uh, but then doing it uh, only through voice. Mm -hmm. Uh, And his crime empire still exists, but it's propped up by, like, a Wizard of Oz phantom of the original Dr. Mabuza, hidden behind a curtain uh, with a a microphone and a silhouette to... To order people around
2: yeah and fritz long made a a third dr mabuza movie in the 60s that i think is also like a direct sequel to this movie of like dr mabuza has been dead for 30 years but somehow he's back um (laughs) and they're at least i think this one and the first one are based on like pulp crime novels sort of like fantomas-esque yes uh books um, and I think in those, there's, like, even more of a sense of, like, the supernatural around Dr. Mabuza. Like, he might be, like, more of an evil spirit than a person who, like, possesses, like, his, like, essence is, like, transferred from person to person.
1: Like Irma Vep.
2: <laughs> I guess kind of. Right. If we're going on by the Irma Vep, like, TV show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I, just, I love the, like, such a main, like, pillar of this movie is the idea that, like, ideas can be dangerous. And that, like... Mm-hmm. Just the fact that Dr. Mabuza is, like, writing this stuff down. He doesn't even have to be, like, enacting all these criminal plans. Like, as long as people are following his instructions, like, it's it'll still happen. And even after he's dead, like, he's still sort of, like, exerting his evil influence. Because also, Dr. mabuza's whole thing is, like, he's not in crime to, like, make money or to, like, grab power. Like, he just wants, to paraphrase, a movie directly inspired by this one. He just wants to see the world burn.
1: Yeah, Chris. Chris Nolan had his uh, screenwriter uh, watch this movie uh, in uh,
2: yeah. his his, as, his screenwriter, as... his brother,
1: <laughs> the other Nolan.
2: Yeah, Jonathan Nolan. Um, I just realized that see... me
1: and my brother have the same names as Whoa. the Nolan brother. <laughs> do you have
2: Do you have a, a, a secret third brother who's uh, a con artist? <laughs>
1: Uh that's none of your concern. Oh. Well, damn. Maybe. <laughs> but uh
2: you can definitely see a lot of how much Christopher Nolan has sort of not necessarily directly lifted from this movie, but you can I think he's he's clearly a fan of Fritz Long movies. And this movie is I think uh, like this and Metropolis are the two that I think are that is the most apparent in. Cause yeah, there's definitely a lot of like super villain dark knight stuff in this in this one.
1: And also, Metropolis is the name of where Superman lives.
2: True. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um,
2: and yeah, I think like spies, there's a lot of like James Bond stuff. The the sort of like literal man behind the curtain is very kind of Blofeld-esque. Hmm. Um, even if it turns out to be an elaborate ruse in this one. There is some great like crime spy stuff of like the being locked in the room with the taking bomb and having to yeah. escape that like whole... having to
1: use having to use your wits to escape yeah
2: that whole section is great
1: it really it is just like as we were watching spies we were saying this like it james bond owes so much to these movies yeah
2: like to a degree that i i had no idea before watching them
0: yeah
1: like apart from like kind of like i don't know sort of you know Spectre's is an evil organization but like it's not like talking about real organized crime stuff and i think this does touch on this kind of gritty aspects of organized crime where they talk about like like oh yeah we're selling like cocaine morphium and Mm -hmm. uh, morph (laughs) cocaine morphine and opium yeah talking about actual drugs yeah uh, instead of just making a reference to them
2: yeah it's like it is kind of like i said before like marrying the 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 really pulpy James Bond stuff from Spies with, the, like, really grounded, like, crime procedural stuff in M. Like, there's a bit in this where a guy is assassinated in his car during a bunch of honking horns, which is yeah. great. And then the the cops investigating it are using, like, ballistics to, like, oh, the like, the angle of the bullet. And, like, the bullet was clearly fired from this gun because we tested the bullet. We, like, compared the bullets being fired from different guns, and this one matches. Yeah. Which I think is... is uh I've never seen that in a movie before this, and it's really cool. And then, so the besides the sort of, like, Dr. Mabuza... Dr. Mabuza, the guy, is, like, barely in this movie. He's only in, like, a couple of scenes. Mm-hmm. And then there's, like, the crazy hallucination of him, which is amazing. Uh, in yeah, a which
1: uh, which Fritz Lang said that he regretted keeping the supernatural elements in crazy, this Crazy, because that stuff is amazing. Story. Like, that
2: stuff is so cool.
1: I think that, like, the double exposure, like, he's seeing the phantom of Dr. Mabuza. I think that stuff's, uh, that stuff's, like, you could play that, however, like, that could just be, like, his imagination or that kind of thing, as, as the psychiatrist has been driven insane. But, um, it goes as far toward the end of the movie as doing a, like, the shining style, like, the ghost is opening doors to help people Mm -hmm. out. Uh, well, it's like,
2: this guy thinks that a ghost opened the door and then other people see that, like... It's not necessarily, like, no one else could have opened the door, but it's, like, from this one character's perspective who is clearly, like, is hallucinating and is unhinged, it's, like... I don't know. It's it's ambiguous enough that I think it, it works as, like, how did this door get opened? Maybe it was a ghost. We don't know.
1: Right. It's interesting, the ghosts. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and that stuff is, like... There's a lot of cool like expressionism stuff in this movie during when we're like in the heads of people who are who have gone mad kind of like there's the doctors like seeing like phantoms of Dr. Mabuza and like hearing his voice talking to him and things like that. And there's also the guy who is like an informant for the cops who is like driven insane and then. Is like there's oh, a bit where yeah. he's like answering the phone, and we see like the, the room he's in is like a normal table and like chairs, but then we see it kind of from his perspective, and everything's made out of glass and like is transparent. Super cool,
1: yeah, that's really neat. Uh, yeah, them, them like trying to get information out of this informant, but his mind got so broken that like he cannot really tell them mm-hmm. anything, uh, and they're just trying to like divine what uh what information they can out of his uh out of like the state that he's in and like mm-hmm. the things that he's saying he's kind of like stuck in this uh stuck in this moment of like pre-attack from yeah. uh from from when he was getting silenced by the gang
2: dr mabuza is played by Rudolf Kleinrog. Rog, um i'm probably butchering that again but this is what happens when i do no research but he's the guy who played the, the mad scientist in, in Metropolis and the supervillain guy in Spies also.
1: Uh, and he played Dr. Mabuza in the original. Right. Also. Yeah. He
2: does not return in the third Dr. Mabuza movie, as far as I know. Uh, looks like
1: he died before the 60s.
2: Yeah. But his, his voice in this movie is really sp- like he's like talking in a whisper and like people are just kind of hearing it in their own heads. And it's it's very unsettling the kind of main characters they're actually following for most of it are there's the police inspector Loman. Loman. That isn't the guy's name in M, but it is like almost the same character, right?
1: Yeah, he's inspector Carl Loman in M. As oh, okay. Well. Oh, cool. Um so I guess this is They got a bit of a the Fritz Lang <laughs> cinematic universe. The the Langaverse. It's like yeah. a it's like a Tarantino thing where right. you got your recurring characters.
2: Oh, that is that is cool though. I didn't really put that together so right so the police inspector from m is also in this movie (laughs) um and smokes lots of cigars and is uh, a hard ass then we also follow uh tom and lily and tom is uh a criminal who works for mabuza's like crime gang um but he's also in love with lily and is sort of torn between he's trying to get out the two worlds yeah he's
1: he's haunted by He doesn't want to kill nobody, and he's haunted by the killing that he's done, uh, but he can't get out of the criminal gang.
2: He does eventually confess to Lily that he went to jail for murdering his last girlfriend, and Lily's like, that's okay, you seem okay,
1: and it's like, okay? (laughs) I would take that as
2: a bit of a red flag, but...
1: (laughs) Like, yeah, let's just hit the brakes for a second.
2: Lily is very understanding. But so, yeah, eventually Tom fails to show up to work at crime... (laughs) Him him, and Lily are, are put in the in the sort of like secret meeting room and find out that the man behind the curtain is just a, a speaker and like a wooden cutout and they're locked in with and there's a ticking so they're they're going to get blown up if they can't escape and there's the whole scene of them trying to like cut through the ceiling like pull up the floorboards and get to the floor like they can't get out of the room so uh, Tom decides to break the pipes to flood the room so that when the bomb goes off, it'll, the force will be dissipated through the water
1: and then the bomb will open a hole in the floor that they can escape out of. It's also got this like whole, like there's other plot stuff happening at the same time. So it's sort of like doing this very, this thing that's done in a lot of movies these days, which is just like, you know, you've got like this tense scene uh and you keep kind of like coming back to it mm-hmm. as it develops. Yeah. Uh, while like, and it's and like the other scenes that it's intercutting with are kind of relieving some of the tension, but then creating some of their yeah. own tension at a the
2: lot same of, time. A lot of the editing in this movie rules, like is um there's a lot of yeah, like intercutting between different kind of like parallel scenes happening. There's lots of like start a character starting a conversation and then like we cut away to a different scene, but that conversation carries over into it because that's what they're talking about there was a really great transition where someone holds up a photo of someone and then it like transitioned to that person sitting in the exact same position. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, there's like so many different like kind of threads that we're following that it's sort of jumping between them all really well. And then it it kind of ends with like Mabusa's plan works. Like he blows up this factory and like releases poison gas into the air. And it's like, (laughs) it's only after that, that they kind of like figure out that he's, he's sort of like imprinted his own, mind
1: onto his psychiatrist right like the success of the movie is that they have determined what's going on but like his plans were good and he won yeah yeah (laughs) and yeah like his his plan isn't
2: like it's just to like mess up germany basically
1: fritz lang really yeah (laughs) being subtle on that one you were talking about the the cigars that Loman smokes, and I forgot to bring up that that ci- that cigarette bit was in um, Gold Diggers. Uh, oh, right, was, yeah, that was also in uh, mm-hmm. in Popeye. Do you have anything else on on the Testament of Dr. Mabuza?
2: I don't think so. I mean, I I really liked this one a lot, and was very surprised by the the twists and turns that it took. Yeah,
1: it's a fun one. 1933 is a solid year.
2: Very like, good movie year. Yeah. Uh
1: another movie that is about a uh completely uh antisocial guy who wants to destroy the world <laughs> is uh The Invisible Man. Ugh, what a picture. Uh, which also rules yeah. uh, this uh also this, a, this a
2: returning director.
1: Yes, this is James Whale, who we saw on Frankenstein as well. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, the Invisible Man feels like him kind of, like, redoing Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. uh, Like, his version of Frankenstein. Uh, uh, There's a lot of similar plot elements. But I think this movie is executed a lot better than Frankenstein. Yeah. Uh, it's Frankenstein's good, but this is, like, really good. Yeah.
2: This is definitely... For the show, this is definitely my favorite universal monster movie that we've watched so far. We're kind of hitting all the big ones, but even like in the grand scheme of them, of like all of them that I've watched, I might like creature from the black lagoon more than this, but like this might be my favorite universal monster movie.
1: Yeah. I mean, this, this movie is, it's really intense. Uh, it's like the, the guy, the invisible man is very threatening. Uh, and the voice work that the guy who they hired to play him, Claude Rains. He was a, he was a relatively inexperienced actor, and a lot of people like didn't think that he would be very good on mm-hmm. uh, on on screen. He had just kind of been in stage stuff, and uh, he didn't screen test very well. But uh, James Whale hired him just based on his voice, mm-hmm. uh, which is what he mostly is in this uh, in in this movie. Yeah, uh, and his voice is. Very imposing.
2: It is him, like, playing him in the bandages also, mm-hmm. I think. But, yeah, it is, like, he he gets so much uh, out of that voice. It is really a, a sort of, like, a very voice-forward, naturally, performance. And, yeah, Claude Rains crushes it. He's got a great voice for this character. I feel like he, this is another instance where it's, like, the Claude Rains Invisible Man voice is, like has become such a thing where it's like, if you want almost like an, like an evil mastermind voice, (laughs) it's like, do that. Like that's kind of right in the book on it. Almost.
1: Uh, yeah. Especially a British one. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Interestingly, like both the invisible man and Dr. Mabuza are these sort of like criminal mastermind types who just want to like blow things up. And Dr. Mabuza talks in like a hoarse whisper all the time. He's always whispering into people's ears and stuff whereas the invisible man likes to make very grand declarations and yell at people and complain
1: about people
2: entering his room
1: <laughs> yeah i mean for like he is in you know both of these characters are invisible in some ways mm. uh, but uh dr mabusa is is you know kind of using that invisibility to yeah like seed ideas and and this guy is just like do what I say, damn it! Yeah. <laughs> or I'll
2: strangle you when you least expect it.
1: Yeah, he's he's using his invisibility to in like an an extremely like threatening, ominous way. Yeah, there's a scene where he talks about like you know what he can do and his ambitions for like ruling mm. the world, and because he's figured out the secret to becoming invisible, uh, and he's like, I will make like the governments of the world compete for who was going to get the secret from me. Uh, like they'll grovel at my feet. Everyone's going to worship me. I can, I can rape and kill like however much I want. Like it's, it's (laughs) very extreme. Yeah.
2: He really goes off the deep end.
1: Um. Uh, (laughs) part, part of the framing of all of this is that, uh, uh, the 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 serum that makes you invisible also makes you crazy <laughs> right
2: he uses a a fictional chemical called monocaine which is uh a sort of bleaching agent um but then also just happens to cause murderous thoughts and megalomania makes you go mad um i didn't think it was kind of funny they're like monocaine it comes from india which feels like then kind of it's a far off place that we don't know about. It's scary. It's the Orient. It? Yeah. yeah. It's very like it's, it's foreign. It's scary. But so I, I like how this movie kind of starts with him already invisible, already crazy, yeah. already yeah. like plotting awful things. Like we don't see him as a scientist before any of this. Everyone just talks about Jack Griffin, the scientist as like, he was obsessive, but he's like a swell guy. We never meet that guy. We never see him. People only talk about him. It's like the only Jack Griffin we ever interact with or like see on screen or not see on screen, more like, uh, is crazy invisible Jack Griffin.
1: He's not just invisible. He's crazy invisible. (laughs) Yeah,
2: he is crazy invisible. Uh, Classic uh, iconic look of him with like wrapped up in bandages with either goggles or red sunglasses.
1: Yeah,
2: I am. I'm a. Big fan of his wardrobe in this movie, I gotta say, because he either he's got like two looks. He's either like in a suit with like big goggles and the bandages over his face, or he's in like nice pajamas and a robe and and bandages and like cool Victorian sunglasses.
1: He this movie starts with him walking into a town like uh uh like I don't know like in Franken does that happen in Frankenstein? No. I I guess, guess there's
2: kind of a similar scene in Dracula where they're like coming yeah, from town. But, um Dracula.
1: Yeah, but it, it's not, yeah, it's not the bad guy, I guess, in Dracula. Mm. it, uh, Oh, it's Renfield, actually. Yeah. So it is kind of like, yeah. But it, anyway, you know, he, he is kind of following some road signs in a snowstorm to like, mm-hmm. uh, and he he uh, ends up in this village called Iping, Iping in Sussex. And... uh finds his way into this inn with these people with very funny accents. uh, All right,
2: all right, here you are, governor. Very very cockney, (laughs) heavy-duty English accents. Uh, Including,
1: and so, you know, he goes up into his room. He's very rude to people. He would have been fine, honestly, if he wasn't so rude. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) It's it's a side effect of the serum also. It makes you very rude. (laughs) Like, if he just wanted to be left alone uh uh to work on his invisibility serum so that he can become invisible and cure himself at will uh and then make other people invisible if they give him piles of gold right Uh, well because
2: initially he is trying to figure out a way to make himself visible again yeah and then kind of abandons that as his
1: insanity deepens and he is just concerned with causing mayhem he's not nice to all of these people in the inn and also they're not that nice to him because also they true. uh they they think he's weird because he's covered in bandages and that's and and they want to spy on him <laughs> and all that so that's not very nice but i mean speaking of the accents they end up you know he ends up getting a little violent with them and uh uh they call a cop over and oof, oof. <laughs> the cop they call over, the Bobby that they bring yeah. over. He says, what's all this then? <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I <laughs> <laughs> He's a very like bumbling cop. Uh, and when, uh, he starts going on a bit more of his like a murderous rampage and the actual police get involved. Mm-hmm. They start shaming this guy for being a bit of a bumbling fool.
2: Well, at first no one believes that there's an invisible guy. Yeah. Because the, the Tans people kind of like bust into after he's like push people down the stairs, they bust into his room and he's like, ah, you think I'm just a crazy person? Check it out. I'm also invisible. And he takes off his bandages in a very cool scene that is still yeah. I think very impressive to look at like the VFX I mean, of it
1: looking at those at the invisibility scenes like and the kind of reveal of the invisible man it's amazing it's yeah. the best effects I've seen in any movie so far mm-hmm.
2: at least until the next movie that we talk about <laughs> um yeah super impressive like ho- holds up surprisingly well he takes off all his clothes and goes on a little invisible rampage for <laughs> the town which, I, I do like how this movie is set during winter, and so it's like, when he's going full invisible, he can only kind of do it for short periods of time, because it's so cold out, and he's like, I'm freezing, I need to go inside, put clothes on.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a naked, invisible man wandering around. Yeah,
2: Which I think the movie does... Acknowledge more than I kind of thought it would. That it's like, yeah, he gets really cold.
1: This movie, like, is very concerned with the mechanics of him being invisible. Mm -hmm. Or it also talks about how he can't go out and commit his crime sprees uh, if he's eaten in the last hour. Because the undigested food still, like, is visible uh, hanging in his stomach. I
2: do wish they showed that, but (laughs) I also understand why they
1: didn't. He even, he points out, yeah, it's
2: like he has to keep his nails clean because the like dirt under his fingernails will give him away.
1: Yeah. It's very, very well thought out. Yeah. All of the, uh, all of the mechanics um, of it.
2: I do think it's funny. He's talking about all his like grand and some of which he does get into of like causing accidents and disasters and things to happen. But like initially all of his sort of crimes as an invisible person are like pushing people down the stairs or like spilling their drinks or like tripping people or taking their bicycle. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, it starts off... starts very small. Innocent. Yeah, not really Uh,
2: innocent, but he's just
1: kind of using his invisibility to, like, fuck with people. (laughs) But at the beginning, like, you know, he's he's, uh, fed up with all of these townies, and so he's like, ah, look at me, I'm stealing your bicycle. Isn't that silly, you know?
2: (laughs) He does eventually... uh, He goes, breaks into the house of his former friend and kind of demands that he be his visible helper in yeah. all of his crimes against humanity. An-
1: another shared element of this with Frankenstein is that there's like two scientist understudy buddies. Right. Who, uh, one, uh, who one goes off and does something crazy and the other one's after his girl at the yeah. same time. <laughs> like super obviously after his girl. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. Jack Griffin and, and Dr. Frankenstein are very similar characters and are like treated in very similar fashions, I think in both these movies. James Whale loves
1: a loves a mad scientist who's going off the rails. Yeah. Jack Griffin, he um starts exerting his invisible powers upon his old buddy mm-hmm. uh and very quickly makes his threats like very real. He's like, I yeah. could be anywhere, like you yeah. like can't escape me. I can follow you and you won't know it. It's all like very threatening. It's all like once he has decided to use his power to uh, manipulate people, it's it's very easy for him to do so. And it's like terrifying. Like he yeah. is invisible. There's nothing yeah. you can do about it.
2: Well, that's that's the thing. is like I feel like as a monster, the Invisible Man initially is sort of like, he's invisible. Like who cares? Like what's he going to do? I think this movie does a really good job of explaining like how terrifying that implication really is yeah one of just like if someone's invisible then they they can sneak up on you and like stab you or like choke you to death his sort of preferred method of murder is is strangulation which is a scary way to kill someone yeah but then i think that this movie does really well and that i was very impressed by and kind of didn't expect there to be as much of this as there is is that as the movie goes on you start to get more and more just kind of, like, uncertain about whether or not he's even in the room in certain scenes. Yeah. Like, the other characters are starting to be, like, we have to just assume that he's always next to us because he might be. And it's so good. That idea is terrifying of just, like, the fact that he could be any- anywhere at once, he almost starts to actually be everywhere at once. And, like, people start to act in that, like, just assuming that he's in the room because,
1: like... right the the hijinks in this town uh that he was staying in they start off as this like this silly thing of like this whole town thinks there's an invisible guy isn't yeah. that dumb and then once they real once he like chokes out a cop in front of the other cops yeah. uh they the radio starts saying everybody lock your doors yeah. there's an invisible crazy man out
2: and i think i think this movie starts to do uh, um that the, the 2020 remake of this movie also does really well is it's like, it'll just show you like an empty corner of a room. And just that is very threatening because it's like, is he there? He might be. He might not be. But like, you have to start to assume that he's lurking in every corner because like that's
1: always a possibility. Yeah. And speaking more to the mechanics, like they're, they're so. After this all becomes apparent, there's basically, like, a nationwide manhunt for him. Uh, And the precautions that the cops are taking are, like, okay, well, like, we've got to think about, like, what could it imply that there might be an invisible man (laughs) near us? And it's, like, how do we ensure that, uh, like... What are some strategies we could use to capture him? And like, how do we ensure that he's not near us while we're talking about our plans? And so they go into this room and then run a net across the entire Ah, room to make sure that he's not in the room with them, which is a really great touch. Yeah. Uh, And they're like part of their plans toward capturing him are like spraying him with paint or like knocking Mm -hmm. some dirt onto him so that it sits on his shoulders and you can see it floating. Very, very, very cool stuff. Yeah. yeah. Another thing that I was sort of, I
2: I guess I sort of like almost like the intellectual implication of this movie is like, how much is Griffin's like insanity and his like cruelty coming from the fact that he's taken this weird chemical and how much of it is just him like tripping out on the power of being invisible? Because he does, he does like get worse over the course of the movie. Like he starts out and he's just like a jerk to everyone. He's just rude and is like, he's, he's clearly, you know, not, not well, but then by the end of the movie, he is like plotting to like take over the world and like commit mass murder and things like that. And it's like, I like how much of it is sort of like, some of this might just be him. The fact that he has been invisible for like weeks or months on end might have just like changed his, the way that like he sees the world almost. Right, it's like just by being invisible has made him more evil
1: i i mean yeah there's a there's a <laughs> there's a contender for there's a contender for that for sure it's kind of the absolute power corrupts absolutely argument uh the way that this movie ends is uh i well uh, the the way this movie ends is also like a quite quite a frankenstein ending mm-hmm. uh yeah. So after this manhunt, they have. There's a farmer who's discovered some uh, kind of strange, sno- mysterious snoring sounds and uh, <laughs> and uh, leaves or, or like hay rustling in his barn. Yeah. Uh, after he's been on the run for a while during his and, his manhunt, also he does he causes like a
2: train derailment by yes. like murdering the the guy who works at the train yard and like. Tur- like, turning the tracks so that the, tr- the trains collide and explode.
1: Yeah, yeah. He is really just wanting to, like, cause as much havoc as possible. Yeah. To just show people how powerful he is. Maybe I'm skipping a little bit ahead to the ending. But uh, he also just, like brutally murders uh, his friend after he realized that oh, yeah. he called He called the police. Right. He's like,
2: if you betray me, like, I will find you and murder
1: you. Like, you cannot
2: escape. Like, I'm going to be behind you at some point and you won't know.
1: <laughs> Very ominous. And
2: so the guy, he's like, no one can leave me. Like, I have to always, like, be in a room with powder on the floor. He's, like, taking all these precautions and he thinks that he's gotten away. But he gets into a car and he's driving along and then he hears a voice. In the back seat, <laughs> and yeah, Griffin like causes his car to go off a cliff
1: and explode. Yeah, I knew you. Sh- you, I told you you shouldn't betray me. Yeah, now now you'll suffer the consequences. There's some good stuff also with him sitting in cars, like while he's like having having his friend do his bidding because like uh like you can see. So so much stuff to just make him feel like he is present in the space. Mm -hmm. Uh, They do a lot of really good stuff with like moving props around with wires that you can't see. Yeah. Or like, 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 and making them move in ways that don't look like they're being pulled by a wire. Yeah. Uh, Like the, like they're being manipulated by a person. Uh, But like specifically with the cars, uh, you see like the seat depressed down Mm -hmm. when, when he sits down. Yeah. just, Just another great touch you're seeing that with the hay in the barn at the Mm -hmm. end. Uh, he's in this, it's a, it's snow and the, uh, the cops know that they can track him in the snow. So they're like, this is the time. Like we've got to find him now, uh, while it's snowing, they get a call from the farmer and they, and, and, and a la Frankenstein, they, uh, set fire to the barn, uh, to either like smoke him out or burn him alive. Uh, and they, mm. they have a ring, like a ring of, of cops all the way around, uh, the, the barn so that he can't slip past them. And they also, uh, and, and they can see the snow, uh, all around it. So <laughs> as the, as the fire, as the barn burns, you see footprints in the snow. Yeah. And they, they even, uh, the cops
2: say like, no one walk over to it. because they I'm like, we have to keep the snow clear.
1: Yeah. And, uh. And yeah, they're able to they're able to shoot him. Yeah, uh, like based on the footprints.
2: And once he gets shot, he falls in the snow, and you see like a
1: body, like the snow depress, kind of like the seat. The way they did that, uh, John P. Fulton is the engineer who did all of the special effects in this movie, and uh, he did the invisible effects, and he also did these. Which uh, the way it was done was they put fake snow on top of a platform and then had cutouts, foot-shaped cutouts, in the bottom of the platform to, so to, that they pulled down to sink the sh- the snow down in foot shapes. Fantastic. The best.
2: Like, such a simple thing, but, like, all the effects in this movie are, like, really kind of almost deceptively simple. But, uh, right, so as after he gets shot, he gets brought to the hospital, and his his old girlfriend, Flora, comes and visits him. And kind of Flora is like the one person that he kind of acts normal around, like presumably how he used to be before he went crazy and invisible. I do kind of wish the movie had a little bit more of this like doomed romance subplot, because I think Mm -hmm. it's a it's a it's a cool idea that like he's going crazy. But like his connection to her is like kind of his one tether back to sanity. She's definitely Um,
1: more developed than the equivalent character in Frankenstein. But, yeah, yeah yeah
2: um but so then at, when he dies he uh they sort of have a moment as he's dying where he's like kind of returned to his old self a little bit and then he he dies and he becomes visible again in the hospital bed and we get our our one shot of claude Rains's face in the whole movie oh yeah uh so flora the girlfriend is played by gloria stewart who is most famous for playing old rose and titanic Yes. Which I didn't know until after I saw this movie, and it, that's a fun, fun bit of trivia. <laughs> she does uh, some really kind of classic
1: 1930s capital A acting in this movie. Of like, <laughs> oh, why? She's also one of the co founders of the Screen Actors Guild and of the oh, Hollywood oh, oh. Anti Nazi League. Good job, Gloria. Well done, Gloria. You're done good. Going back to the effects a little bit, like these yeah. just mind blowing uh, invisibility effects uh the um the way it was done it's it's still using double exposure or multiple exposures, as has been the trick for mm-hmm. every movie uh since eighteen ninety six but they are just being used to an extreme level of expertness, here. yeah, the way that they were able to isolate the certain areas where he was supposed to be invisible was they would cover everything that was supposed to be invisible in black fabric. So the effect of that is that you're not getting any of that janky translucency Mm -hmm. that you get in other movies that haven't done it as well. Uh, There's no translucency in the composited quote unquote things here. Like it looks like it's fully in the scene. It's three dimensional too. Uh, Like you're seeing things being unwrapped and like the, the, you know, you're seeing the, the cloths moving around. Yeah. It's, oh God. It's amazing. There's um,
2: also, right. There's the, like the multiple exposure thing, which is like, ha- they had to do like, I think like four passes of. On, I, think, I think there's.
1: The mirror scene in particular. Well, I think where the mirror scored. scene they had to do
2: like eight passes because they'd have to do it once for the image in the mirror. And then once for the like foreground image of him also taking the bandages off.
1: Uh, but then they needed to do the back plate of the mirror and the back plate yeah. of the the foreground. Crazy.
2: Yeah. And then there's there's at least one shot that of a close-up of him taking the bandages off his face. And that was done with the, like a wire frame that they actually just wrapped bandages around. So that one has like even more kind of like 3D. You can see the back of the bandages in that one. Whereas in the multiple exposure stuff, they kind of... Right? When he's like... Has the bandages half off of his head. You can't see the back of them in the front. Right. This is an awful thing to explain in audio, but
1: the 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 shots are very thoughtfully composed to make mm-hmm. the effects pop as well as possible. Yeah.
2: yeah. And then there's also just fun stuff like a pair of pants chasing someone down the street. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, this movie's a blast. Yeah. This is great.
2: Uh super fun. Great lead performance. Great monster. Did you say great monster? I did say great monster. Great transition to one of the best monsters in any movie ever. It's King Kong! King Kong! We finally did King Kong!
1: Oh, we finally did it! We
2: don't have to change the album art for this episode at all.
1: Yes, the the background of all of this is that if you have been seeing the lovely uh, album uh, episode art that we have done custom for every, every episode, uh, it is based off of a photo that i took of a print of king kong that i ran i held the loop up to the kind of iconic scene of him in front of a skyscraper and uh and took a photo with my phone and then cropped out the the king kong imagery and we put in different stuff but Mm -hmm. now we don't have to yeah now it's just the original photo
2: you did take like the best single frame of king kong possible it's like the most iconic thing i had to on the empire's (laughs) day building
1: with an airplane yeah. When I'm running movies that I know well on film, and I'm trying to capture imagery, I I know I know what images I want to capture. Mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did. I I got one of those for Nightmare Before Christmas too, while he's yeah. like standing on the on the mm. spiral hill. Yeah. You know. I had seen this
2: movie a bunch of times. This is one of my favorite movies. I mean, I mm-hmm. saw this movie when I was I don't know how. Yeah. I saw this movie as a young kid. I hadn't seen it in a while before I watched it this past week. Um, but it's like, it's up there in terms of, I think I, I might have actually liked it less this time. Not necessarily no. liked it less, but there's more stuff stuck out of like, oh boy, this is an old movie. <sighs> right. Um, but they're often kind of so over the top that it doesn't really hurt the movie as much as it maybe should for me. Yeah. I, people know what King Kong is, but it, it feels worth mentioning that this is like one of the most famous movies ever made probably
1: yes yeah it's one of those uh, this is uh th- this is a huge movie it's very influential it's like it was so Duty that killed the beast yeah
2: it's like so <laughs> ingrained in culture though that like an entire building became associated with this movie and is like inseparable yeah, yeah. and even like the idea of like any primate of of any si- notable size is like oh king kong <laughs> donkey kong uh, Right, and we're just Kongs. like, King Kong is like a nickname of, like, If someone's really big, like, uh, King Kong over here Like, King Kong is like, so It's like a reference that everyone gets
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's uh... Any, Anytime
2: someone is standing on top of a building And starts, like, swatting at something It's like, oh, King Kong
1: <laughs> It's iconic Yeah It's iconic
2: It's like, but it's it's so iconic We talked about this with, like, Frankenstein and Dracula But, like, King Kong might be even more of a, like Also, because also those were books first this is like a purely. This came from movies and is still kind yeah. of. I feel like it's in the the Roku background. You know, it's like it's it's so associated with. <laughs> if like, you've movies made it into too, the Roku
1: background,
2: <laughs> that's when you know you've made it. But it's it's like if you're gonna throw like five like scenes from all of movies and you want to pick like the five most iconic ones, this would be one of them.
1: I think. Yes, uh, I. Had seen this movie before as well. I've probably seen it a couple times back in the day. But I mean, I think, probably I'm pretty been,
2: sure you watched this at my house at some point. Uh,
1: I'm sure I have, yeah. yes. But it'd probably been at least a decade since I've seen it. Yeah. And uh, I was shocked at how brutal this movie is. Oh, yeah. I forgot that uh, this
2: is a pre-code movie and that it is, like, <laughs> it, it goes places.
1: Uh, this This movie, you know, it's not... I think that... You feel empathy for Kong, but it's not quite like the Peter Jackson movie where, like, uh, he's a bit more, like, it's mm-hmm. a bit more sappy or whatever. Like, he is a monster in this yeah. movie. Yeah. And, like, you you see that he's suffering a little bit. But also, he's just, like, like chomping people and breaking mm. their backs and snapping dinosaurs in half. Yeah. And, uh, like... The the violence in this... This is some of the most shocking violence in any movie we've seen so far. Yeah.
2: Yeah. A lot of it's against dinosaurs, but still. Even with the people. Like, when well, he's, yeah. like... People getting when, crushed and stomped and eaten and, yeah.
1: There's such a... And, you know, speaking of, like, the ways in Invisible Man, where the special effects are integrated into the scene, it's done really, really well in this movie, where, like, there's a part where... Uh, he's coming up to like some guys who are crossing a big gulch, uh, mm. on, on a, on a log and he starts shaking the log around to like make them fall down. Uh, which, you know, they have the stop motion composite, like in the background kind of moving its hands. And then the, they have a giant log that they're just moving yeah. with the actual people on it. And then. Uh, and then the people fall down to their deaths and like snap their backs on mm-hmm. the ground. Yeah, It's it's brutal. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, this movie it does such a good job of like, the stop motion animation in this is the best that's been done up to this point, like hands down. Yeah. But it does such a good job of integrating it into live action, of like always having sort of like something in the foreground or something in the background that is being shot live action of like with real actors or real sets to kind of give this illusion of
1: yeah and they do some they they also sell that really well with some uh like tight like super tight close-ups of kong's face Mm -hmm. uh that are made in much more detail it's still stop motion i think but it's like
2: they they did build a a big kong head too though
1: okay yeah there's
2: a big kong head they built a big built a big kong hand
1: right yeah
2: i don't know how there's a lot to talk about with this movie i feel like should we just like start at the beginning sure because right at the beginning before the movie even starts we see the rko logo which l- maybe look a little familiar to someone who watches the show
1: uh i guess i mean you know they didn't invent that imagery i think but, they uh, did i
2: think that's rko that's like where the the they did it in the spies. radio tower true also true funny because we also use a radio tower on a
1: yeah, thing. we're we're very we're a very kong uh setup, very concentric con- show. Uh but this is the first RKO movie we've seen, really big right? famous production company. Yeah,
2: RKO which was about to go bankrupt when this they made this movie, they kind of put all their chips on it and it uh saved their entire company. I mean, it it looks it It looks so expensive. Yeah. I guess we'll get into it later. This movie like cannibalized whole other movies and like absorbed them into its production. But uh this movie opens with a completely made up old Arabian proverb, which goes, and lo, the beast looked upon the face of beauty, and it stayed its hand from killing. And from that day, it was as one dead, which uh, is not a real proverb. It's made up by either Marion C. Cooper or Ernest Shodzak, one of the two directors of this movie, which we'll talk about them more, too, probably.
1: Uh, uh, this movie also starts with an overture, which is new. Well, I think uh,
2: that's on the DVD. I don't know if that was a thing when it first came out or not.
1: Oh, really? Why yeah. wouldn't it be?
2: I don't know. But I, I'm yeah, I'm curious how much of that was, like... I don't know if that was something added back in when it was, like, released on DVD. Because, like, earlier releases of it did not have The Overture. Um, oh, interesting. But this movie, like any movie from this time period, got censored and, like, recut later on. So, who knows?
1: Oh, King Kong originally... Did not have an overture. Okay. Okay. I like how it does That's now, nice. though. Turner Classic Movies added it in 2005, oh, okay. apparently.
2: Yeah, so, like, right right off the bat, we meet um, Carl Denham, who is a, a, a moving picture director. And is a pretty direct analog for one of the directors, or I guess both directors of this movie. Either Marion Cooper or Ernest Schoedsack. Because both of those guys were like crazy adventurer filmmakers that like went off into faraway countries and like made sort of not really documentaries, sort of like uh, Nanook style documentaries where they a lot of it was scripted, but they were kind of trying to show people in the United States what like other cultures were like and then kind of misrepresenting them by doing so. But um you know they had a lot of stuff like wild animals and lions and things. So Carl Denham is is very kind of clearly based on them. Um, he is also pretty much every like toxic negative trait that like a filmmaker can have in one character. Like he's incredibly egotistical and uh, reckless and willingly puts other people in danger and does not care. That was another thing I think rewatching this movie. I was cuz like in remakes of this they usually treat Carl Denham or the Carl Denham analog as like more of a like a villain. Hmm. And I was like oh Carl Denham in the original movie he's like he's okay he's just wanna trying to get his movie made and it's like no he's like a crazy person in this movie. He's a very <laughs> dangerous person to be around. Reck-
1: extremely reckless, yeah. yeah.
2: And so he's getting ready to go off to a mysterious place to make his new his new picture and uh the the producers are saying you need a you need a girl in this picture. You need a lady. And he says, Isn't there any romance in the world without a flapper in it? <laughs> the dialogue in this is also very like nineteen thirties banter heavy, yeah. which is very fun.
1: There, there are uh, a lot of people who just are not fans of women in this movie. Uh, like,
2: but we, when you say that, I feel like normally it's like, oh, okay, they like are kind of sexist or like treat women badly. No, they directly say to them,
1: "I don't like women." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like this is the first movie that Carl Denham has made that uh, has a woman in it, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> So they're like, God, ah, the studio's forcing me to make a make a picture with a romantic angle, so it'll sell yeah. more mu- sell, <laughs> sell more tickets. Yeah. The romantic angle.
2: Um. So yeah, Carl Denham goes out on the streets of New York that night to find a to find a woman, and the first place he goes is Name to a like woman. <laughs> the first place he goes is just like a woman's shelter because it's the Depression and like people need food and housing. And he's like, Ah, these are all uggos. I gotta go somewhere else. <laughs> he doesn't say that, but that's the the vibe. Yeah. Um, this section of the movie in New York City, I was surprised, I guess, at how, like, directly it is kind of commenting on the, the Great Depression. Like, hmm. this is a very, like, Depression-era movie, and it's about kind of, like, money being tight, and, like, things are, are, are rough out there on the streets, and it's, like, hard to get food. Because then he's walking by an apple stand, and... And Darrow is uh, stealing an apple that he he pays for, played by Faye Ray. Classic Faye Ray. Is been in lots of movies, but this is like the only one that she is ever remembered for because obviously something went wrong with Faye Ray in <laughs> King Kong, <laughs> and uh, and so then Carl Denham has to convince her to just get on a ship that night to go somewhere that she doesn't know where. where. And he won't tell her. Yeah. And not an actress, but she's like, hey, you're pretty. You want to be in a movie? She's like, sure, mister. Yeah. Well, she takes a little bit of convincing um, and he has to say, look, I'm on the level. No funny business. (laughs) I have that quote.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Like, yeah. She thinks that, like, you know, he's trying to, like, take her up to his apartment or whatever. But, yeah. No i'm not interested in ladies yeah <laughs> <laughs> i am an asexual reckless adventurer <laughs> yeah and so
2: they they got they got on the, the moving picture ship and head out to parts unknown and on the ship and runs into uh the first mate of the ship jack driscoll who one of the first things he said well the first the way they meet is jack driscoll accidentally slaps her in the face because he's thrown his arms up in the air um and then he says women can't help being a bother made that way i guess
1: <laughs> it's like jesus christ
2: <laughs> tell us how you really
1: feel and uh this is this is uh the smithers role in uh the king kong uh simpsons right. house of horror segment one of where the where best houses of horror <laughs> where he says i think women and seamen don't mix <laughs>
2: <laughs> but so jack Trisklin and andero I'm kind of, they they start to fall in love with each other, but the way it's dramatized in this movie is a little clunky. It's mostly just them saying that. Like, I don't actually think they have that much like romantic chemistry in this movie. But no, he's um, a, he
1: is a he does become a strapping adventurer when he stops being yeah. like a whiny first mate.
2: Yeah, um, Carl Denham picks up on the fact that he's getting sweet on Anne. And he goes, some hard, some big hard-boiled egg gets a good look at a pretty face and bang. He craps up and goes sappy. <laughs> Incredible line of dialogue. It's around here that we find out that we are... Uh, are the destination uh, for this expedition is a place called Skull Island. There is also a Skull Mountain on Skull Island. Um, it's like how
1: there's a New York in New York.
2: Right, yeah. And then... The that mystery solved. It's a mysterious island. No one's ever been to. It doesn't. It's on, not on any map. Carl Denham has the only map because he interviewed a drunk sailor in Singapore, and got him to draw a map for him. And he's he's doing some some screen tests with Anne on the deck of the ship with his old Bell and Howell hand cranked camera. And we get a a shot of the three three crew crew guys like all all on a ladder like stacked on top of each other. Which immediately stood out to me because that's where in the Simpsons episode there's the best joke in that whole thing. <laughs> we're going to Ape Island <laughs> to find a big ape. I wish we were going to Candy Apple Island. What well, they got there? Apes, not so big though. <laughs> uh,
1: it's a classic Simpsons it's, joke.
2: It's, it's so simple, but it's it's the funniest. One of their classic
1: world. misdirection style jokes. Oh my god. Uh, yes, yeah, so while they're on the ship, uh, she starts kind of befriending one of the monkeys on the sh- like a monkey that's just hanging out on the mm-hmm. ship, which I think is a nice bit of foreshadowing. Yeah, uh, she's just friendly to this like little charming monkey and Daryl, friend again. friend
2: of apes, friend of apes. Yes, also this is when uh, when they're doing the screen test, we get our first Fay Ray scream. Mm-hmm. Fay Ray, famous for her screaming in this movie, maybe the first scream queen, like actor who's like known for being in horror movies and screaming i
1: guess dramatic so ways. especially because you can only newly scream at all in movies that's what
2: i i thought about that of like you that can't exist without sync sound so it's like that's that's kind of the genesis of that whole hollywood trope also they get to skull island through the fog we get our first look at it with the big map painting which looks really cool um even, like, the, some of the, sim- like, really simple VFX in this movie are really effective. Like, the, like, animated birds in the foreground, like, flying in front of yeah the kind of view of the island.
1: They do so much in this movie with, like, depth. Yeah, uh, yeah. To, to like, really sell these scenes. And, like, multi-pane stuff and, mm-hmm. like, yeah. And, um, like, they're just silhouettes of birds uh, that are in the foreground while they're landing on the beach. So it's just, like, like black animated Mm -hmm. figures but like it works it's good it it, like sells that there are creatures here you
2: know once we get to the island too is kind of when the score starts really kicking in and this is like one of the first movies to have a like extended like dramatic orchestral score Mm -hmm. like the mummy had a little bit of score like here and there but this has like most scenes in this movie that aren't just like straight dialogue scenes have uh music under them like non-diegetic music yeah and max steiner who wrote the music just doesn't ama- like the score of this movie is still a great movie score
1: yeah and it's and it's like used in a very like classic you know movie score fashion yeah like there there isn't anything that feels out of place with it
2: certainly. which definitely like watching this movie growing up it's like ah oh, king kong it's got it's got music in it like whatever But watching it in context, it's, like, that really stands out really dramatically. It's got music. Yeah. Yeah. When something happens and there's, like, a big musical sting under it, it's, like, that... No one's done that very much. Like, it's very kind of sparingly used in other movies. And this uh, is not sparing with the score. And it's
1: great. This movie, like, takes its time, too. It's, um... It feels like it's about halfway through the movie when you first meet King Kong, or maybe like a third mm-hmm. of the way through the movie. Yeah. I
2: think it gets progressively longer in each remake. Um, I think it's like there were a lot of reviews of the Peter Jackson King Kong. It's like, it's like an hour and a half until King Kong shows up. But I, I like that, the opening section. I like, I like how much it takes its time and kind of builds tension of like, where are we going? Yeah. We don't know. Like Skull Island. What's the deal with Skull Island? I don't know. There's like a There's like a beast there or something. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and then they uh, they go to shore and uh, spy on the, the local indigenous islanders who live on Skull Island. Um, this is definitely the part of the movie that holds up the worst.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> uh, I, I was watching it and I was just like, ah, racism. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. It's definitely a big, uh, like, for as much as I love, like, classic 1930s adventure shit, it's like, it's all pretty racist. <laughs> Uh, this this uh, movie in particular kind of yeah
1: and it, it, it you know it's the kind of thing that it's like it's not hateful right like it, right it's, it's not it's just like oh the indigenous people they wear bones in their hair and stuff like that you know yeah. and like it's uh it, it's, it's it's very fearful quite ignorant
2: yeah it's ignorant yeah. and it's very fearful and it's definitely yeah. like playing up sort of like cultural differences as like ooh they're scary yeah i will say this movie at least is able to cast people of color as opposed to just putting paint on them which would yeah be, is definitely be like worse the lost world which this movie is like nearly a remake of did that and it was bad but so the indigenous people see see Anne and that she's blonde and they're like
1: that's a new and they say, "Yeah, blondes are scarce around here." And they say, "We'll trade, we'll trade six of our women for your one blonde
2: one." Yeah, which uh, they
1: they think about, but then don't actually do.
2: Uh, and also, they, yikes! <laughs> they like don't immediately refuse, which is uh, kind of funny. So yeah, they have this kind of tense standoff with with uh, with the village during their they have, they got their big Kong ceremony, sort of sacrifice that's going on.
1: Yeah, they 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 kind of like come in just at the right time because they're right, having yeah. their like yearly Kong sacrifice. Right, but
2: so they kind of they kind of leave under tense terms. Carl Denham was like, "I want to go back and I want to film more," and they're like, "No, like we can't." Like, calm down, Carl. We need to be safe. And uh, back on the ship, Jack and Anne are talking, and Jack says, "Say, I guess I love you." <laughs> to which she responds why jack you hate women
1: the chemistry <laughs>
2: i know and he's like well that's true but i guess you're okay there is a, a a bit of i don't know if this is intentionally comedic but there's like this like swelling romantic music under this conversation and then it cuts away to captain like the captain of the ship and like the music immediately cuts out when it cuts away to a different person and then, like, it
1: comes back when it cuts back to them. And I that's, I found that so funny. <laughs> I didn't notice that, but that could also just be, like, a factor of them being new right. to this kind of stuff. But yeah. it was like,
2: oh, it's great. But so then the, the, uh, the Skull Islanders sneak aboard the ship and kidnap Anne. Uh, so they have to mount uh, a rescue party. And they get all the boats and they get all their rifles and pack into the boats and... Go back back to the backpack
1: full of bombs.
2: Yeah. They got the gas bombs that had been set up right from the beginning of the movie. Like, what are we bringing all these gas bombs to the island for? And Carl's like, oh, you'll we'll see. We got our first big reveal of Kong coming out of the jungle.
1: Yeah. Which is Giant, great. like, giant... I mean, y'all, anybody listening has seen this imagery before. Of the big but door. Like, yeah. The giant door that they keep locked to keep kong on the other side but they open it every once in a while to give him a sacrifice a, a new bride of kong yeah and uh they decide to make it uh Ray this time yeah and so they tie her up they, they tie her up and offer her up to kong and he finally you finally see him he finally reveals himself uh in another shot that is kind of like using the depth to and and like multiple exposures yeah. to put her and the giant uh, animation creature in the same frame. Because
2: it'd be one thing to have, like, a, a cool animation of Kong coming out of the jungle, right? But by having actual Anne be, like, in the foreground, it gives it such a sense of scale of, like, immediately you see
1: how big Kong is.
2: Yeah. Because there's a person in the shot.
1: We also haven't mentioned uh, Willis O'Brien yet. Mm, uh, who is kind of just the lifeblood of this entire movie. Uh, yeah, uh, he is the animator of Kong and the Dinosaurs, and he did uh, the Lost World previously, and a couple other shorts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, also like um,
2: the Slumber Mountain, and was it the Ghost of Slumber Mountain, right? Yeah. And uh, a little backstory on on how he got involved in this movie is that he was already making a like people go to an island full of dinosaurs movie called Creation in the early thirties for RKO and had already like built all the dinosaurs for it and like shot footage from it and things. And then RKO was like, we're shutting you down because we're running out of money and we're going bankrupt. Marion Cooper and Ernest Schoedzak were like, Hey, we have a crazy ape movie. You want to bring, you want to do one, do the effects for that, but then also bring in all of your dinosaurs that you'd already made.
1: And he's like, I love dinosaurs. And so
2: it's like this, so this movie really kind of, this movie has, like, full scenes in it that were kind of planned for creation. So that's mm-hmm. what I mean. When, it like, this movie kind of, like, ate a whole other movie and absorbed it into itself.
1: As Kong eats people.
2: Sure. I mean, Kong kind of doesn't really eat people. He just kind of munches on them and spits them back out. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, once, once they kind of uh, send the rescue mission into the jungle after Anne, we get the best part of the movie, which is, like, Anne and Kong... In the jungle, fighting dinosaurs, and then the crew of the venture, uh, chasing after through the jungle, also fighting dinosaurs, and uh, yeah, all of these scenes are the best, and I love them, and I I <laughs> want them to be playing in the background all the time.
1: This is where that that scene where they're shaking, the shaking Kong is shaking the log happens. Mm-hmm. Almost all of the adventurers die, uh, except for our our strapping hero, and but they use a lot of. That same kind of mixing two different scales together, mm-hmm. uh, popping between uh, pulled back fully stop motion scenes with stop motion human beings in them, and sometimes like Kong will be holding, uh, like holding her, and then uh, she's stop motion while he's holding her, and he puts her down on a tree mm-hmm. to go fight a dinosaur, and then she becomes like the live action version. Composited yeah. in, uh, while he goes and fights a dinosaur, which is sick. Yeah, uh, it is when he fights a dinosaur, it rules. <laughs> and that's
2: like that's a thing where like this movie would be a cool movie were were it not for Melissa O'Brien. But I think Melissa O'Brien is the one who makes it like a great movie because he's able to infuse so much like character into the the creatures in this movie, like. And I'll, I mean this the the fight with the T Rex right. Is the coolest. But it's like that's all Willis O'Brien. Kind of like doing choreography. And stuff. Like mm-hmm. uh, apparently Willis O'Brien was. uh Like was into boxing. And wrestling earlier in life. And so that's where we get like a lot of the great. Like fight <laughs> choreography. In the scene where King Kong is like. Socking a T-Rex in the mouth. And like throwing him over his shoulder. And things like that. Um, Where it's like yeah it's like there's so much personality in in the animation too yeah um and so much of like why kong works as like a character as opposed to just a monster is because like there's a bit right after he shakes all the people off the log and and jack stabs him in the finger as he's like reaching down to grab at him and it's like kong is like hurt by it and he's like checking his finger and like he's like "Ah, ah that
1: hurt yeah, it's all very, very well planned out animation. Um,
2: or even, yeah, like fighting the T-Rex. And after he he breaks the T-Rex's jaws open, which is a crazy way to end a fight. And there's all like <laughs> gore spilling out. And King Kong just starts like playing with the jaws. Because he's a monkey. Right. But it's like just that extra little detail is such a, like adds so much and like yeah. gives King Kong kind of like interiority.
1: It's the same thing um, in the spoilers death scene at the end <laughs> yeah, where yeah. Uh, like he is gradually getting more and more shot mm-hmm. uh, by the airplanes and you see him go from like bravado to like vulnerability yeah. to like accepting his death. Yeah. Uh, a- and you can see that like on his face and in his movements.
2: Yeah. That's like, that's amazing that the- all that stuff comes through as well as it does. Yeah. After the log scene is the uh, kind of infamous lost spider pit scene, which is in the Peter Jackson one, but was uh, deemed too gruesome, even by pre-code standards, and uh, is like a famous like lost scene. Like they probably burned the film and it's gone forever. But there was originally a bit like in the Peter Jackson one where a bunch of spider creatures come out and eat the crew that fell off the log. (laughs) There's also, like, a weird two-legged lizard thing that crawls up at, to get Jack after the uh, after the log bit, which is that, like, weird creature design kind of comes back in uh, the Skull Island movie, the Kong Skull Island, the, um, the sort of monster-verse uh, movie. But, uh, yes, yeah, so then it's just Jack chasing after Anne through the jungle. we skip it over, like, a, that... The whole uh, Stegosaurus fight, the whole bit where they, they go through the swamp and the Brontosaurus comes out and, like, eats a bunch of them, a bunch of the crew.
1: That's a good part, yeah. So good. A, ver- a real vicious Brontosaurus. Yeah, a
2: Brontosaurus that is just eating people left and right. Which I, I also love that kind of, like, every dinosaur in this movie is, like, the most monstrous version of a dinosaur possible. Like, even or even the herbivorous dinosaurs yeah. are these, like, horrifying creatures that will just kill you <laughs> immediately
1: stego's a nice guy stego's my favorite dinosaur yeah
2: but like the stegosaurus has like it has like eight spikes instead of four like it's just it's this like amped up version of a stegosaurus which is really (laughs) cool jack eventually catches up to Anne, and they escape while while kong is fighting a uh pterodactyl up on on top of skull mountain and so they escape back and then kong chases him and carl's like hang on we can catch kong and then we'll all be rich also, be right there's the bit where kong is coming at the uh the gates and they're all holding it's like both the the crew of the venture and the the uh the villagers are like bracing against yeah. the door and kong they had their differences
1: through. but they both they they're... both have an interest in stopping kong yeah. from getting through then
2: kong busts through cuz he wants his he wants his lady back and like destroys the village and eats a bunch of people or stomps like, on them, like cru-
1: crushes them into the mud. Yeah, like, Ugh. yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty gruesome. Maybe not gruesome, but it's like more violent than even other pre code movies.
0: Um, I
1: want to mention also, like, uh, like, uh, so like one thing while Jack is uh, saving saving Anne from Kong, and in Kong's lair is uh, that like there's all this smoke coming up from the ground. And it's like one more thing that like integrates him into mm. the scene: live action, lady, stop motion, Kong, miniature cave, and then like like superimposed smoke that like really just adds like a really really great sense of scale to everything. Yeah, they're like it. Including another way that that smoke is used is in Invisible Man, where he smokes a pair of like a, he smokes some cigarettes <laughs> while invisible, and like the smoke just blows out of nowhere. Ugh. like it's a it's a really good way of like solidifying a scene in like real physics.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for uh, sure.
1: They throw some bombs at Kong, and they're like, "Let's take him to New York."
2: Yeah. Cut to. New York, where he's on on Broadway. Kong is now a Broadway show. As you do with a a big giant animal. Put him, put him on a Broadway stage.
1: This made me really uh, mad that I never saw the Kong Broadway show a couple of years Same. ago. <laughs> yeah, I,
2: I really wanted to see that and I never did. Even just, to, I did walk by the marquee though once and that was maybe, that was worth it. Because <laughs> to see, right, to see the an actual marquee that says Kong in Times yeah. Square... Is very cool, and then uh we get some other sort of funny inflation bit, right, where there, there are people lining up to get into the theater, and someone goes, "These tickets cost me twenty bucks," which that's what I—that's where I got the figure of five hundred dollars. Like that's twenty bucks in nineteen thirty-three is like five hundred
1: dollars now. I mean, I might pay five hundred dollars to see Kong.
2: See, it's like, hey, there's a Broadway show. It's about a big gorilla. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, people people walk in thinking that it's a movie, and then the the usher is like, "No, ma'am, It's a giant monkey." <laughs> yeah,
2: which uh, I think is is like that's kind of what I don't really know what audiences in this movie are supposed to think Kong is. They just see a sign, like it's a bit hazy. Like they how just did they Carl just bi- sell are this big
0: show?
1: director people, and <laughs> they they they'll follow Carl Denham wherever he goes. Maybe one one kind of strange thing about this you know potential movie that he was making. Is that it's a hand-cranked camera, uh, mm-hmm. which, like, makes me wonder if this is supposed to be set in the silent film era. Uh, I think
2: it's it's probably early enough in the talkie era that, like, if you're going to a jungle to make a movie, you're not necessarily going to be shooting sync Sound the whole time. Right. So I think the kind of... The implication is that he's making movies like Cooper and Shodzak made movies, which I think was oftentimes with hand-cranked cameras like in the jungle but uh yeah we got our, our big king kong on broadway thing they're taking pictures of him he gets
1: mad he breaks out and runs amok <laughs> he doesn't like the flash photography as as all performers hate i really don't know if i'm gonna like make somebody if somebody <laughs> what? i don't know if, if cirque du soleil is gonna fall to their deaths if they see a flash a flash bulb <laughs> but uh I don't know why people act like it's that serious, but uh, it is for Kong, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is where Carl Denham also gets the idea. It's like, yeah, that's the angle. Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, from kind of workshopping with the reporters how to, how to do this. But so
2: Kong escapes, runs amok, busts in trains. And he, he, uh, he finds someone that he thinks might be Anne, but isn't. So he just drops her to her death. And then, uh, reaches into a building and pulls Anne out and climbs the Empire State Building. Which, they got that great wide shot of, like, the in- the entire Empire State Building. And you see the skyline and just the little kind of silhouette of Kong climbing up the side. Yeah. And they're like, oh no, oh no. How will we ever get him up there? And Jack goes like, airplane, see? That'll get him. So they send a bunch of airplanes after him. And, uh... The great climax of the movie happens, where King Kong
1: fights the airplanes on top of a building, and then gets shot. <laughs> he's able to he's able to take one down, but uh, eventually they yeah. plug him with enough lead that uh, that he he yeah. slowly loses and energy that is, and falls off the building.
2: Like a thing that is, this scene is kind of the thing that like really puts this movie over the edge of being like a great movie. Is that even though Kong is treated like a monster for most of the runtime of like he's it's scary. Sad. He's a big, yeah. scary gorilla, like, watch out, he'll get you. There is that, like, over the course of this whole scene, you go from being like, not me, I was like Kong, but, like, I feel like at the beginning of the scene, it's like, <laughs> yeah, the airplanes are going to get him, to being like, oh, no, this is so sad. Yeah. And that's just through, like, Kong's body language, as he's, like, getting weaker, and he's bleeding out, and he's, like, kind of starting to realize that he's dying. Like, you can see, like, a moment of realization where, like, he he understands that he's about yeah. to die.
1: And he puts, he puts Anne down because he doesn't want to kill her along with him.
2: Yeah. It's like, there's such a sense of, and the music matches that like, it's definitely intentional. This is supposed to be like a very tragic scene when he eventually falls.
1: Cause you know, he's just, he's just an animal. He didn't do anything wrong. Uh, except kill lots of people. Yeah. But I mean, like definitely I felt, especially when Kong was getting loose and like killing, killing people in New York city and also killing a lot of the adventurers. Uh, I had the same feeling when the dinosaur got loose in the lost world where I'm just like, hell yeah. Yeah, Same. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, anytime Kong is rampaging in this, it's
2: great. But after, after he dies, we get the, the, the classic last line. It wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty. Killed the beast.
1: Yeah. And then the movie like wraps up real quick. Yeah. It's the last
2: shot of the movie. And then it's like, done. We're done. (laughs)
1: It it ends very abruptly, but uh, yeah, it's yeah. a good picture. It's a good. It picture. is. I
2: think like the writing in it is like worse than I remembered. With all of the sort of like, women are dumb.
1: Yeah, yeah. the The dialogue writing is not fantastic, but I think that like just the whole adventure aspect and yeah. the um the the effects and like the scale, uh, it yeah, it all works so yeah. well.
2: Um, it's, it's a great example of like both spectacle and like emotion accomplished through effects. Like Mm -hmm. there's all of just the fun of seeing dinosaurs eating people or just like how big Kong is and things like that. But there's like all of the emotional stuff of of Kong dying or, or interacting with, with Anne are like, also that's like full credit to Willis O'Brien for being able to do that as well as he does in this. I think I found that about this movie regarding the the effects is that they like while promoting it they released like fake explanations for how the effects were done i guess to like keep it a secret they were like we can't tell anyone how we did this and so there's like full diagrams and things of like forced perspective sets that they didn't build and like people in ape costumes and things that they never did (laughs) they did that for invisible man also they also like lied about how the effects were done
1: proprietary effect i
2: guess like that's the only reason i can think of why they would just straight up lie about it but i i think that's actually really fun like i i kind of want a movie to do that now i'd be like oh do this uh shoot this in the volume or like you did this with mocap like no it just makes make up an explanation i think that would be great i don't know any other big thoughts on on kong
1: i think i've said everything that i i've thought of you're you're the big kong guy. i am i
2: am a big kong guy it is (laughs) i mean i have I think I, I showed this on the show before, right? I I bought like a a King Kong souvenir magazine. Yeah. The Life magazine King Kong edition.
1: <laughs> for for the podcast listeners, he is holding up the Life magazine King Kong
2: yeah. edition. And it's got you know it's got some cool like behind the scenes pics in here. Maybe we'll try to I'll try to find JPEGs of those and throw them up in the in the video. This movie was shot Simultaneously, or like around the same time as The Most Dangerous Game, which was released in 32, which we didn't watch, but I have seen. Have you seen that movie?
1: No.
2: You, you know about The Most Dangerous Game, though, right? It's the- humans. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's the- what I know. <laughs> crazy guy hunts people on his island, but it's like, it's the same island, basically. Like, it's all the, ju- like, mm. a lot of the jungle sets and stuff, there's like clearly the same sets. Also, Feyre is in both movies. And, uh, yeah, this movie is a long kind of cultural tale, I guess, they immediately, because this movie was so immediately successful, they made a sequel and released it in the same year called Son of Kong, which I have seen and is very bad. (laughs) Because it's about Carl Denham is so ashamed that he he has killed Kong. Carl Denham gets a real sort of like redemption arc in the sequel, which is kind of fun. That's like Hmm. the best thing about it. Otherwise, it's a very obvious cash grab. But so Carl Denham, like, goes back to Skull Island and finds Kong's smaller son, uh, who's, like, a cuddlier version of King Kong. And there's, like, more, kind of, like, cheaper dinosaur stuff happens. And then Skull Island, uh, there's an earthquake in Skull Island, sinks into the ocean at the end of that movie. Um, but it's it's not good. Don't watch it unless you're a King Kong freak like me.
1: I kind of want to see it.
2: Yeah, I mean, Whatever. Uh this this was remade in the 70s uh with Jeff Bridges and Jessica Lang and I do not like that movie I think it sucks and is bad. Uh have you seen the 70s King Kong?
1: I haven't seen that.
2: Okay. Also not a fan. I do really like the Peter Jackson remake though. Even yeah. though it's it's I think the last time I watched that movie I said it it feels like um every scene in this movie feels like a deleted scene. <laughs> <laughs> in that it's like this is a crazy scene. I understand why they cut this out, but it's it's really something to see. Um, well, you were watching the? Uh, were you watching the extended? Version? I was watching. I don't remember which. I think I was watching the the theatrical cut last time mm-hmm. I saw it, but I don't remember. But there, I mean, there's like King Kong versus Godzilla in the 70s, where like King Kong is a entirely different character, almost who's just a different big gorilla who lives on an island. And then there's the recent King Kong movies, Skull Island. And uh, Godzilla versus Kong Which are very Wacky Kind of dumb movies But I like a lot <laughs> I like the monsterverse Skull Actually Kong Skull Island Is I think the only King Kong movie That treats the like Indigenous islanders With any respect whatsoever And the only one that isn't like Super fear mongery around them Like In all the other ones They're like scary Like Subhuman Almost just like You know othered just like xenophobic right people and in the skull island movie they're just like yeah they're just like an indigenous village they like they don't they don't like do sacrifices they're like they're just they all they also live on the island and it's right. like oh, okay yeah that's what actual like human cultures are like um so I guess. Shout yeah, out to that movie the, for
1: probably 2005 King Kong was getting toward the end of when that was broadly culturally accepted.
2: Rewatching that movie, it's like, yikes, dude! Like, I think <laughs> it, it almost tries to over-correct by being like they're so far from like a real human culture that they're just hmm. monsters. Um, I don't but it it yeah, it treated. doesn't it doesn't play great. I don't think. But so even even today, there are still be movies made. Movies being made about King Kong because he's just that great.
1: The ape lives on almost a hundred years later.
2: And then I mean Marion C. Cooper later made Mighty Joe Young, who's another ape big ape movie. Uh we got Dwayne Johnson in Rampage making his own big ape movie. <laughs> like big apes became like a whole subgenre
1: after this. Right. Yeah, true. <laughs> I mean, I guess, yeah. You're, you're talking about Rampage, which was based <laughs> on a video game, which probably was just
2: right, directly
1: yeah. inspired by King Kong. Absolutely, yeah,
2: yeah. King Kong, crazy movie, crazy. Like even by like any standard, like this is a this is a pretty crazy movie just in terms of like what happens in it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but I, I think it, it it is really there's like. S- the thematic ideas of it, I think, are really strong and really hold up. Of like civilization and like the wilderness and kind of uh, you know nature versus don't, versus don't man. Mess with nature, yeah. Like King
1: Kong cannot live in New York City. <laughs> it wouldn't work. You see, the moral of the story is King Kong can't live in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> King Kong, what a picture! What a picture indeed. Got anything else on King Kong?
2: I no, I'm I'm conged out. I mean I probably could keep talking about King Kong, but I don't know if it would be much of a conversation, so much as just me saying King Kong things. It'd
1: be a conversation. Ah uh... Alright, well that'll do it Dang for it. this week. Should that be the name for of the episode?
0: episode?
2: <laughs> a
1: conversation. Yeah, I like that.
2: I like the other one they came up with more still, but <laughs>
1: If you, if you like our show, you can uh, follow us on socials and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and um, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, and uh, yeah, that, that, that'll do it. A lot of good movies yeah. in 1933. Wait a second. Glenn, what's your favorite? I mean, I, I guess it, it kind of by default has to
2: be King Kong <laughs> almost. But I don't know. Like... I also really liked uh, Design for Living, yeah, and I really liked Invisible Man, and I I really liked Mabuza and Gold Diggers also. Like but Design I, for I, Living's
1: got to be it for me.
2: Yeah, all, all, I I think I I have to say King Kong just like by obligation almost <laughs> because otherwise like my entire identity would would shift.
1: You could just but, become um, a Design for Living guy instead of a Kong guy. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got I got to buy the 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 Life magazine Design for Living edition. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll do it on this episode. We're doing 1934 next, a lot of good movies looking yeah, like they're coming some, up there. Some
2: I'm I'm really looking forward to from that year for sure.
1: Well, Glenn, I'll see you next year.
2: See you next year.